0: Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives. For more episodes of For the Love of Yoga, visit us at patreon.com slash yogawithnish. May these words serve you. And let us begin. So today, um, very excitingly, we're going to talk about the five obstacles Uh, to enlightenment. And that's an interesting thing. We're going to unpack a little bit what enlightenment is uh, across many different traditions in South Asian philosophy. And we're going to explore our own motivations in practicing spirituality or in being on the path, so to speak. And we're going to troubleshoot a little bit. We're going to explore with regards to what it is we hope to take away from this journey, why we might not be doing that or what might be getting in the way. And some of us have been on the path for a very long time. You know, we began to wonder, um, what are we looking for? Are we on the path out of habit? Uh, What did we hope to get from walking this path? And what is keeping us from getting it? If indeed we can even articulate what it is that we're hoping to get from this path. You see, the predicament is, you might not have entered this practice Consciously, you might not have sat down one day, pondered the various options in the menu of life and decided, yes, fame, fortune, power, all of these don't really do it. I think in this incarnation, I'm going to order spirituality. I'm going to order enlightenment. It's not really that rational or conscious a choice for most of us. And to borrow a metaphor from Ram Das beautiful metaphor, you are drawn into this practice like a moth is drawn into flame. You know, so for a lot of us, we suddenly realize, oh, wait a minute. I'm hanging out on Zoom with a bunch of other people who are devoted to this chanting of 9,000 year old mantras in languages that are barely spoken. I'm doing some kind of weird contortion on my floor, and my children are crawling under my downward dog. Everybody's confused as to why I'm doing these things. I'm also confused why I just paid $2,000 to take a pilgrimage to Kashi. We often don't realize. that we're engaged in a full-on spiritual journey until we stop and look around and go, oh, I've spent the last 10 years doing this. You see, so it's not very conscious. Sometimes we're just inadvertently drawn into the matrix of spiritual practice as if there was a kind of gravity in our life or to be more precise, as if there was some kind of evolutionary call within us pushing us to grow and eventually our growth brought us to spiritual practice. You know, once I I was sitting with a very uh, uh, beautiful guitar teacher in his house, old man, he was teaching me guitar. And we were getting very interested in jazz chords and chord spellings. And I I said to him, how peculiar, you know, I'm a rock guitar player. And Buddy Rich says, you know, if you don't practice, you'll end up in a rock band. That was me. I like simple power chords, like just kind of uh, rock and roll. And I was very surprised that I was becoming involved in jazz music. And he said to me, you know, when you really love music, Nish." eventually your soul will find its way to jazz. <laughs> that was his statement. Um, but it echoes almost this spiritual quest. Sooner or later, our pursuit for pleasure turns into a pursuit for culture. Our pursuit for culture turns into a pursuit for learning. And our pursuit for like Kant and Hegel and economic theory turns into a pursuit for spiritual learning. It's almost like the taste of chocolate cake gave away to the delight of learning about a new composition or looking at a new piece of art, and that gave way to learning subtle theories about the world, philosophy, economics, and that gave way to learning about subtle theories about the self and the soul and the maybe um, more mysterious aspects of life. So it seems inadvertently, despite ourselves, whether we know it or not, we are all on a journey from the dense and the gross to the subtle and the mysterious. We are slowly being refined, whether we like it or not, perhaps through suffering, perhaps through philosophical discernment, perhaps through joy, something is moving us forward. Often it's a fire under our ass. Often it's losing a house, losing a loved ones. Often it's cancer. Often it's something so radically uh, uh, profound, something that so changes our life that causes us to seek out spirituality, but not all the time. Sometimes it's subtler. It's less dramatic. It's not the fire that destroyed the neighborhood. It's not the loved one that it w- found an accident. It's 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 subtler. It's something quiet, a quiet impulse towards picking up that book at Book Soup one day. You know, that's a nice uh, LA bookstore for those of you in town. So, the question then is, we don't really know how it is we came into spiritual practice, but the one thing we do know is here we are. Somehow or other, all of us in different parts of the world, Z in Indonesia, which is beautiful, and Jana in Brazil, and Roxanne over here, my neighbor, all of us somehow found ourselves here in this room, um, deciding to spend a couple of hours with other people who are strangers, but don't feel like it, talking about the same things that we've talked about together for the past, uh, some of you, past year and a half, and the same things we've been talking about as a culture for the past 9,000 years. So what's up with that? <laughs> And why are we doing this? What do we hope to get out of this? Okay, that's going to be our talk today. Uh, We'll start first and foremost with what enlightenment is. How are we going to use that word for today's discussion, given that it has myriad connotations across various traditions? And even in this room, we might all have a different idea as to what enlightenment looks like. uh, And we might all have different standards for ourselves before we can say, I'm there. How will you know? That's the first question to throw out into the audience today. Like, do you know how you will know when you're enlightened? <laughs> do you have a yardstick when you go, I, I did it, you know? Um, what's your measure of progress on the spiritual path? Are you over the illusion of progress? And if so, do you feel kind of aimless and drifting? You see, the predicament is if we're goal-oriented, we predicate our happiness on the goal to the exclusion of the process and then we become very stifled and we feel like we're we're doing it wrong you know we're chasing some illusory thing on the horizon the harvard uh finance bros know this condition all too acutely you know in middle school they were told you can't really enjoy middle school because it, you need to get good grades to go to a good high school so there's the goal you know go to a good high school so they sacrifice the playground time in order to go to some extra uh tuition you know, down the block with that fierce teacher and they're just studying and learning violin and going to chess school or what have you. Um, and I teach middle school. It's, it's quite horrific here in LA what these kids do after school. So no time to have fun, no time to play with your friends. Why? Because there's something in the future that's more desirable than the instant gratification of being on the seesaw, you know? Now you get to high school and then the bar gets put a little further afield. The goalpost gets moved, so to speak. And then they're told, no, you can't, you know, enjoy high school uh, because college. And then you get to college and wait, wait, don't party too much. The goalpost gets moved yet again. So you're in Harvard, you're getting great grades. And then after that, it's Goldman Sachs. And then once you're in the finance position, it's, uh, you know, 75-hour work weeks. And then it's, you have to have this amount of money. And then when you have this amount of money, now the friends that you have just happen to have, you know, more expensive tastes. And you'll need even more money to have the cars and the yachts. And all the while, you are deeply, deeply starting to, to realize your predicament. You've been setting goals and you've been proceeding along life, trying to consummate those goals, only to find that every time you whack a mole, another one appears. The goalpost is moved. So most of us are here in this room because we recognize the predicament of life. We recognize, as Alan Watts points out, if we don't know how to enjoy this moment, It doesn't matter what moment will come after, no matter how good the uh, subsequent moment is. If we haven't learned to enjoy ourselves here and now, if we haven't found meaning in this moment, we're probably not going to be able to in heaven. One of the things that got Alan Watts excommunicated uh, from his church was exactly that thought. Why would you pursue eternal life? Wouldn't it just be an exercise in eternally missing the point? You know, you didn't spend any time learning to be here to enjoy the taste of coffee, um, will it really change when you're in heaven with Morgan Freeman and the rivers of milk and honey? You'll be stressed out there too. You know, you won't know how to be there. Uh, and so we, we realized that. We realized that all our chasing goals is the problem. And so we're here perhaps for new goals, for goals that are less frustrating, goals that are less futile, and goals that speak to our soul a little more authentically than money, power, prestige, sure. But the other side of the coin is without any goals, without desiring something in the process of practicing enlightenment, we find ourselves dissipated. We find a lack of focus and structure, and we find ourselves going from one teacher to another, from one spiritual philosophy to another, where Wiccans on Wednesday and on Saturday were Ashtangis, where Gyanis on Monday and on Tuesdays were Raja Yogis, you know, um, and we're spread too thin across the Aquinas and the Anselm and the uh Ramanujacharya, you know, we find ourselves dissipated, unfocused, and aimless. And we're we're just drifting. And this can happen for a couple of years. You know, you can find yourself in a van somewhere in Sedona, age 56, and you realize, wow, I just spent the last 30 years practicing spirituality. Uh, but I don't really know what I was doing or where I was going or how I got here and where I will go next. Let's just see what happens. <laughs> so notice in the Buddha's Anapanasati, one of the texts that was attributed to the Muni Buddha, there is a discussion on meditation and what meditation is. That is how do you practice meditation? And in Anapanasati, the Buddha expounds that there are two dimensions to meditation. On one hand, there is structure. There is focus, what the Buddha called Samyak Samadhi, right concentration, right focus. And the Buddhist favorite anchor is the breath. Because the Buddhists are very interested in transitory things, in interdependent causal relationships, in the uh, transiency, as we said, and also in void. There's something about the breath that uniquely appeals to the Buddhist intellect. Okay, choose the breath. Now, focus on that. The first part of meditation is anchoring your attention on the breath. This is known as samadhi, focus, concentration. It's different. The word is a little different than the connotation that the yogis use. But that's the Buddha's first thing, focus. But then he found that if you were to wrestle the mind like a rhinoceros, it's futile. You will lose that battle. So on the other side of the picture, while you focus, you must maintain what the Buddha called sati, which means peripheral awareness a kind of relaxation and openness to the freshness of this moment. Too much of one and you lose the other. So if you're too open to the moment without an anchor, if you just allow your ears to be drawn to each sound and your mind to be drawn along with each thought, if you allow your nose to seek out each new smell, that will be nice for the first 10 minutes. But once you get to minute 15 or 20, you're in straight daydreaming land your meditation has lost all focus and structure and you're no longer meditating. You're just sitting and dawdling, you know? Uh, Without that anchor, you tend to dissipate. Your meditation tends to to become too uh, diffuse. On the other side of the picture, though, if you just sit there and become red in the face, you know, like looking for the breath, like (laughs) then your meditation becomes too contracted, the body becomes rigid and you're no longer meditating. So this process of meditation, was really a balancing act, a process of finding the middle way, very literally, between samadhi and sati, between focus and openness, between uh, structure and softness. In the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, there is a beautiful line that yoga teachers in California especially love to cite. It's stiram sukham asanam, or stira sukkam asanam, which means the asana, the seat, the pose in which you meditate, must have two qualities. It must have stira, which means strength, support, structure, and stability. Secondly, it must have sukha. Sukha literally means uh, ease, delight, niceness. Uh, And it must have these these two things. Then in another part of the Yoga Sutra, you're confronted with another paradox. Uh, Verse 12 in Samadhi Pada, the first uh, foot or the first chapter of these four chapters, Patanjali says, abhyasam vairagyabhyam tannirodaha, which means yoga is accomplished by means of two practices. One, abhyasa, resolute, firm, devoted practice. But on the other hand, vairagyabhyam, which means uh, non-attachment, ease, relaxing. And it says in that line, both are necessary, abhyam. You know, uh, and that, that's kind of a paradox. How do you focus with intention, but at the same time, surrender the outcome? And how can you surrender all outcomes and still be motivated to practice? You see, so we've got these paradoxes. And here up front, I just wanted to introduce you to this exquisite paradox, as Ram Dass might say. This practice is fraught with exquisite paradox. And today, when we talk about enlightenment, you'll be confronted with perhaps more of them than ever before. All right. So it seems like, uh, speaking on a meta level, if the practice of meditation requires a balance between structure and receptivity, between concentration and openness, so too does the whole of spiritual life depend on these two poles. Without a sense of goal orientedness, without a sense of direction and intention, you will feel very dissipated, very lost, and very astray soon enough. Without a sense of ease and relaxation, if you were to continue to pursue a goal at the expense of this moment, you will realize the predicament that you will never find it. You will always be trapped seeking, you know, and the only thing getting in the way of your finding is your seeking. Oh, what an what a exquisite place to be. So what do we do about that? You know? All right, so let's begin. Now, the first thing we're going to do is try to define enlightenment. Recognize that many traditions in South Asian philosophy try their best not to do this. Because if you define enlightenment, you turn it into a concept. And more importantly, as you will see in a minute, you turn it into an object, an object of experience, a thing to acquire, a thing to attain, perhaps even a thing to get rid of. Once it becomes an object, your spirituality has been hijacked. That is to say, you have already bought into a fundamental delusion. And as long as you continue believing in this delusion, that enlightenment is something that you need to get, that it's an object of experience, that it's something that can be experienced, you are doomed because you will forever miss the point as to what it is. In order to protect you from missing the point, many great teachers have tried their best not to give you a concept, not to make a thing out of this. Uh, And there are three examples. The first is in the Upanishadic tradition, one of the oldest mystic traditions of the world. um, Enlightenment has always been defined in negative terms, meaning it's never been spoken of directly. It's never been objectified. And it's never been spoken of in positive, affirmative words. It's always been referred to by exclusion or deduction. So when you're doing a multiple choice question, and it's A, B, C, D, and E, The Upanishadic philosophers will not tell you the answer is B. They will only tell you it's not A. It certainly isn't C. And if you look at D, you will realize it isn't that either. And and take a moment. E, E seems kind of attractive, no? E seems like the answer. No. Follow this argument and see that E is not the answer. So what's the answer? Is it B? They'll be quiet. They refuse. Because it's not really even B. That's the problem. But whatever it is that it's referring to, it can only be spoken of in terms of what it's not. So you will find as you pick up your copy of the Upanishads, uh, the language in which it is written is maddening, is frustrating. It almost seems like a prank. It's like you met a leprechaun in an Irish wood and now you're being taken for a ride. You know, it is that which cannot be wet by water cannot be cloven by weapons, cannot be burnt by fire. It is that which cannot be spoken of, but which allows speaking to happen. It is that which cannot be seen, but because of which seeing occurs. It is that which cannot be smelt, but whereby smelling happens. You see, this language is uh, a bit tongue-in-cheek. And you, you wonder, why couldn't they have just come out and said it? Is this like for like a sick, sadistic sense of, of toying with you, like kind of Mr. Miyagi thing? In a way, yes. as you'll see in a moment, the predicament we're in is very funny and spiritual masters will not miss out on an opportunity to make fun of you and themselves for this predicament. (laughs) So yes, on one hand, it is a joke. You are being pranked. Ashton Kutcher will jump out and say you got punked. Yes, definitely. Let's not ignore that there is a real humor there, but there is also a logical problem. It is impossible to say what this thing is. And you'll know why in a moment it's, In fact, only possible to say what it's not. Um, And hopefully, as you follow these lines of reasoning, by circulating around what it is, by looking at what it's not, you will come into um, your own experiential understanding. So this is the path of jnana yoga, largely what we do together. We present arguments, and a lot of these arguments just show you what you are not. And then eventually, you'll come to realize what you are. And you come to realize this not because I told you. That's the most important thing. The last thing you want to do is take this monkey's word for anything. Do not accept anything on belief, on dogma. Um, And a lot of religions are faith-based. And that's why a lot of them fall short of fulfilling you. You know, a lot of them just don't seem true. Because while they might be true for the person who met the angel, uh, for them, it's not a matter of faith. Like the prophet Muhammad spoke to the angel the, uh, uh Abraham spoke to, uh, sorry, Moses spoke to a burning bush. Uh, but uh, unless you're them, for you, it will never be quite as fulfilling, You know, and it can be quite difficult. You know, you, you didn't yet see Krishna in Vrindavan. So you have to take Chaitanya's word for it. I mean, that's, that's a hard one. How do you know? someone that existed in a different time, probably a mythological figure. How do you know? Um, And even if you profess belief, deep down inside, there is a cognitive dissonance, you know? So if you accept things on belief, they don't constitute enlightenment. So if you believe yourself to already be enlightened, if you believe that there is such a thing in the world known as enlightenment, if you believe there is something you can have or, or whatever, even if it's really subtle Upanishadic Buddhist philosophy, If it's only true for you on the level of belief, if you're only accepting it because someone else said it, however cool, friendly and handsome they might be, uh, you're lost, you know, um, because it won't be true for you. So that's that's the first thing to know. The Upanishadic philosophers, in order to save you from secondhand knowledge, work very hard to give you your own direct, immediate experience of what it is we're talking about. So. A point to be made here: there are three ways of knowing. So this is a little bit of Upanishadic epistemology, if you will. How do you know things? And there are, broadly speaking, three ways of knowing. The first is pratyaksha. This means knowing through observing. And this is one of the best means that we have. You know, um, pratyaksha involves your senses: your eyes, your nose, your mouth, your ears, and your hands. You know, it involves. Touching, smelling, seeing, you know how they say, uh, see it to believe it, stuff like that. And it's upon Pratyaksha that the monument of science is built. Science depends on observation. It depends on, oh, hello, dear Heathers living Hello, <laughs> Hello. You know, it depends on you seeing things for yourself. And if a scientist somewhere says something, they should give you a method uh, through which you can see the same things. You can actually observe it. So pratyaksha is one of the best means that we have. But notice this, seeing is not objective. This is the predicament. Often what we see is determined largely by what we are looking for. You know this, this isn't um, too mind-blowing an idea, but we forget the subtlety of this idea. We really think that there is an objective world out there. We really think, honestly, we truly believe that what we see is there. We call this naive realism. The belief, the blind belief in matter, simply because we can see it, touch it, and you know, knock the selenite stick, it makes a sound, my hand feels a thing, I see it, I'm like, yeah, okay. That's enough, I just believe it. And this is dogma, you're believing your senses. Now, as the effort of understanding seeing, as the effort of looking at the biology of seeing, the mechanics of sensation, along with the psychology of perceiving, as we start to develop these fields, more and more we're realizing that we do not see things as they are. Very simple example uh, I like to use, God willing, is you're at a party and you're sitting with a carpenter looking at a table. You two are seeing very different tables. And you know this because when you go to carpentry school and you come and sit in front of the table, it's like you're seeing things for the first time. Do you notice? Sometimes you practice spirituality and, and you meditate and then you, you sip your matcha and it's like the first sip of matcha you've ever had. That first sip feeling, trademark. <laughs> this talk brought to you by Starbucks. <laughs> so um, that showed you that before you didn't see, you saw one thing, you saw a table. It was not that interesting to you. You know, it was just the table. Uh, you just put your matcha on it and didn't care. Then you went to carpentry school and you sat and suddenly you realize, oh, it's, it's not just the table. I mean, look at this teak. This wood is going extinct. Look at the grain. You know, what a beautiful craftsmanship. It's jointed in this way and, and, and it's a new table for you. That shows you that your eyes are to a large extent in a cabal or in cooperation with something else. Your, your mind, perhaps call it that. Yes? You know this when you look at someone and you see them a certain way. You're like, oh, that person is cute. Gonna go talk to them. And you go across the room and you strike up a conversation, and within five sentences, you realize they are a complete dolt, absolute jerk, and they literally look different. Their face, uh, trans—what do you call it? Transfigures before your your eyes, literally, and you can't see them the same way. You notice this in your life. Sometimes people do acid, and the the way of looking at someone has changed completely. So in your own life, you have realized that even the directness of perception is under siege. And so here, uh, later on, Tantra has a theory, a very beautiful theory, it's called the Abhasa theory, which literally means the theory of shining. Now this theory goes like this. Every object you see is made up of two components, objectivity and subjectivity. That is to say, the object is throwing out into the world a kind of shining. And that is hardness, roundness, color, maybe blueness, um, they, they like to use the word blue because they often refer to the sky. So there's something about the object that is at least intersubjective, at least, you know, verifiable by the people around you. That's one part of the object. On the other side of the object is what you're bringing into the experience. Have I seen this object before? How can I look at this now uh, with regards to every other time I've encountered it? Secondly, what is this object to me? As a carpenter, the table is more interesting to me. That's what I'm bringing into the interaction. So I see based not on what is, but also as to what I am, you know. And Ramakrishna Paramahansa, peace and blessings be upon him, makes a beautiful point. When in the twilight, a thief sees a log, he will say, policeman. When a child sees the log, she will say, ghost. When a lover sees the log, she will croon, ah, my beloved. See, it's the same log in the same twilight. It just so happens that who's looking at it changes how it appears. Okay, so this is what we call pratyaksha. Welcome, Teresa. Yes, no more streaming, unfortunately, or fortunately. I feel like this is a little more intimate um, and special. <laughs> you made it. We're the sangha, you know. We'll... <laughs> so um, pratyaksha. This is one way of knowing. Now, in yogic cognitive uh, models they break it up into a few events. There is a thing in the world, it arrives on your eyes as a kind of event and it plays on your retina. Then that carries information, something electrochemical occurs on your retina, that carries information to your mind, known as the manas. The mind is what organizes the sensation. Then the buddhi, which is the intellect, assigns a label and a meaning. So you, uh, 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 you know, something occurs in your eyes and then an image of table forms in your mind. It's your intellect that assigns the word table and decides whether or not the table is useful to you. It evaluates, so to speak. And on one hand, you've got the manas, you've got the buddhi, and then you've also got a very interesting thing, ahankara, which means the eye maker. This is a faculty in your perception that has a self-referential uh, feature. So the table is appearing to me, you know. These words are coming to you. You're sitting there and I'm sitting here. You see, we call this the antakarana, the maker of inner reality. It's a very interesting idea, but pratyaksha is not really seeing things immediately. It's seeing things through the medium of air, of light, and most importantly, of mind. Yes, this is a very important point to appreciate. We see things not directly pratyaksha can never be direct you see and this is so important because a lot of us are chasing mystic experience a lot of us premise our enlightenment upon seeing things you know back in the day if you were to say to someone i'm seeing things they would be very concerned right in this group if you were to say to someone i'm seeing things they will pat you on the back congratulate you they'll be very excited for you because for a lot of us, that's the point. We want to see Krishna. And uh, Vivekananda Ji, peace and blessings be upon him, he also said, if there is a God, I must see it. Beautiful point. If there is religion, it must be realized. You know. So yes, you do have a right to see your divinities and you will. If you continue along the practice of bhakti yoga, If you continue to practice spiritual devotion, you will soon enough develop the visionary ability to see Jesus as Mother, not Mother Teresa, Teresa of Avila indeed did see Jesus as Chaitanya saw Krishna in the uh, forest of Vrindavan, you know, yes, or, or Bengal. Yes, you will see all of your gods are, uh, we, nobody denies that, you will see them. But notice this, it's still mediated by something. Pratyaksha will always require a medium, whether it's light, whether it's sound, whether it's mind or a combination of all of those, it's not direct. Okay. What other ways do you have to know? Well, the next one is Paroksha Jnana. Paroksha Jnana means inference or testimony. So right now, if I were to tell you in the other room, there is a guitar, you might take my word for it. You might make a few assumptions about me. You might think about, Oh, what do I know about Nish? You'd be like, yeah, he probably has a guitar in the other room. I actually don't. I'm at my best friend's house right now. And there are no guitars here, tragically. But if I were to say to you, there's a guitar in the other room, you have to take my word for it. This is accepting things on belief. Um, And maybe, maybe because of authority or whatever, we call them Gricean maxims in psychology. Gricean maxims are the reason why we believe people when they say stuff. Um, And it's a nice Google, Gricean maxims or whatever, but we believe it. We say, yeah, might as well be a guitar in the other room. You never saw it though. There's no Pratyaksha. You didn't see the guitar. You aren't hearing it now, at least I hope not. If you are, good for you. It's Krishna's flute. But if if you're here, if you're not hearing it, you're not seeing it, um, you're not uh perceiving it with your senses, but you are in a way learning about it. So you've come to know about it. You've come to know about it a different way than if you saw it. But in the end, you've still come to know about it. We call this indirect knowledge. Paroksha uh, Jnana. Okay, this third point is incredibly subtle. Most of us believe there are only these two ways of knowing. Pratyaksha, direct observation, and inference, testimony. Is there a third? Is there a third way to know things? You must follow this closely. This This is a very powerful clue. What can you know immediately? That is to say, using the word immediate, without mediation, without a medium. What is the one thing? that you can know or that right now you know without relying on the medium of air, sound, mind, or testimony? What is the one thing that is most verifiable to you uh, directly in this experience? Yes, go there. You see, that you are aware. That you are When you ask God what her name is, she will say this. I am that I am. If Jesus were to be speaking to you right now, he says, before your forefathers, Abraham, were, I was. In fact, he said I am. (laughs) Before Abraham was, I am. Weird, right? Now this, you didn't see it. You don't see your eye. In fact, what you see is perhaps a reflection in the mirror. What you see is an Instagram photo. What you see is perhaps your uh, your therapist's forty-page dossier describing all your psychological conditions. Like you see that, uh, you read that, you experience that. Uh, you get it by testimony. Your parents are like, "Yeah, there's there's a thing. It's called niche." I'm a little disappointed in it. Didn't become a doctor. <laughs> I'll send my parents Anisha and I'll be like, here's the, the brown child that you always wanted. <laughs> I'm kidding. You disappoint them too. <laughs> no. See, you see, you know it through inference. <laughs> Anisha. Congratulations. Uh, <laughs> you see, you, you don't know it through direct perception. You cannot perceive it. If I ask you, where is the eye? You know? And we can even play this game, like, like, where is it? Where is your eye? Can you point to it? Uh, and I, if I say, is it in the toe? I, that's, that's a little, little weird. It's not in my toe. I mean, I am aware of my toe. Like, I am aware of my toe. I am is not the toe. I am not aware of my toe from the toe. I seem to be aware of my toe somewhere else. So this is a nice game. Let's, let, let's uh, follow it. Is it below the belt? You know, so is your eye located here? Is it in this region? Some of you will be cheeky and will say yes, but no, really, is the eye located anywhere here? You might be like, no, not really. And then let's go a little higher. Is it here? Is it anywhere here? And some of you might say, yes, I I feel it in here. Sure, sure. Most of us, though, will say that it's here, somewhere above the neck. And if we were to cut it in the middle, uh, I'd be like, is it on the left or on the right? A lot of us might actually say the right, you know, I don't know. It's just a psychological game, but after accumulating some data, they found that a vast majority of people who were asked, where is your eye? will say mostly in this region somewhere, you can't really locate it. Now, the question is, who is it that's making that identification? You say the eye is over here. Then there must be some other eye, some other sentence center of self that is able to determine that. You know, it's very subtle, but the idea is what you can point to, what you can experience is not the eye. It is something that you're receiving through perception, pratyaksha, or inference, testimony. The eye requires a different order of knowing. It's called aparoksha jnana. Paroksha jnana means indirect knowledge. Pratyaksha means direct knowledge. Aparoksha jnana means in indirect It's quite a funny one. It it, it makes more sense in the Sanskrit. In the English, it's a little weird. It's a double negation, you know? So it's not indirect, nor is it direct. It's something even more direct than the directness of uh uh, awareness of, of sorry of perception. Okay. So in the jnana yoga traditions, in the Upanishadic traditions, they were interested in this aparoksha jnana, this immediate, uh direct. Experience of I. Now, why were they interested in this? Yeah, how can you feel your thinking? Interesting. Yes. So, how do we experience this I? And and you realize you cannot experience it, it's the one uh, that allows for experience. So, suddenly, you're starting to have a clue into the Upanishadic statement like, it is not something you see, it is the thing that allows seeing to happen. It cannot be heard. It is the thing through which hearing happens. It's pointing you to that. And because it's so subtle, because it's paroksha jnana, it cannot be pointed out to you, nor can it be told to you because inference and observation don't quite do it, you know? So what they do is neti neti. Neti neti means not this, not that. And there are a few games to play in order to guide you to this spot. And in a moment, we'll talk about what this spot means to you and why it's a very good definition for enlightenment. So here's the first game. You only notice change from a vantage point apart from that change. So we've done this game together many times. We'll just flow through it rather quickly. So if you were a particle of water in a river, you wouldn't know the river was moving. You'd have to be on the river bank in order to perceive, ah, this river is flowing. That means change is only perceptible from a vantage point of relatively less change. So far, so good. Another example, do you know the world is moving? No, you don't, you don't feel it revolving. You don't feel it going around. It's only when you go on a spaceship and you and Elon go and hang out on Mars that you notice the earth is spinning and moving around. While you're in the earth, it feels like everything is stationary. Sir Isaac Newton would talk about the laws of physics uh, with regards to an object in uniform motion and an object that was still. Whether you were in uniform motion or if you weren't moving at all, both instances, you get the same physical laws. So it's indistinguishable. Things move only in comparison to some other thing. That is to say, if you were on the train, the laws of physics would work on the train just as they would work on the platform. Who moves then? Is the train moving or is the platform moving? According to Newtonian mechanics, the answer is depends. If you were on the train, it's just as correct to say the world is moving around you. The laws of physics would verify that. If you were on the platform, you would be just as correct to say the platform is not moving, the train is moving. Why do we say the train is moving? Only because, relatively speaking, the rest of us are here and the train is over there. So it's much more convenient to say the train is moving as opposed to we are moving around the train and the train is still, you know. And then this later gives us Einsteinian relativity and all of that. Okay, simply put, you only notice change if you are not that change. So this is Sankhya. Sankhya says, let's follow that line of logic. If you can only notice change from a place that's not changed, from apart from that change, can you notice your body changing? And the answer is obviously yes. I was a baby, I was in the crib, and then the body was like adolescent, beautiful, strong. and then it was a little older, wizened, you know, smile lines, and then it was all decrepit and hunched over. and all of this change is happening, and I can observe it. That must mean. Much like only the train is movable to the platform, only the body is changeable to something that is not the body. This is powerful. If you recognize that you are not the body, no longer will you fear death, old age, or sickness. And remember, this is the project of the Buddha. The Buddha set out to solve the problem of death, old age, and sickness. A big part of your suffering is gone then and there that seems rather desirable, right? A lot of what you worry about these days is, am I going to get sick or am I going to die or am I going to get hurt or am I going to get old and ugly? The answer is yes, yes. And yes, the body will get sick, whether you like it or not, it will get sick. Uh, muscle dystrophy. Isn't a thing that just happens to Stephen Hawkins, you know, Lou Gehrig's disease. Isn't a thing that just happens to Lou Gehrig's uh, it happens to all bodies, you know, and is susceptible to some genetic event that, uh, creates what we might call a cancer or an illness you know uh that's a given that's that's a fact of the body and we pretend like it isn't i was watching the peter brooks mahabharata the other day a very beautiful five and a half hour uh rendition of the mahabharata and uh i was watching again that scene where yudhishthira is talking to his father dharma and dharma is riddling him asking like like the sphinx in the uh Oedipus Rex story, the Sphinx is asking Oedipus these questions. Similarly, Yudhishthira's father asks him a bunch of questions, you know. And the final question is, what is the greatest wonder of the world? To which Yudhishthira says expertly that every day we could die, yet men act as if they were immortal. That's the greatest wonder of the world. It's the eighth wonder of the world, that we all pretend we won't get sick, old, and we won't die. I mean, this this is what it means to be a body. Now, if you think you are your body, there's a lot of anxiety in life. I mean, if you really believe that you are this body, you will really be frightened of sickness. You will really be frightened of death. And you might be frightened to lose beauty because for you, beauty is in the body. And given that these things are inevitable, suffering is also inevitable and ever present. But if you were able to realize now through the power of this logic, That the only way you could notice the body changing is if you, in fact, were not the body. That gives you a little bit of distance between you and the body. Now, how do you use this in your life? The next time you feel pain, rather than saying, I am in pain, just say, there is an experience in the body. Why even call it pain? It's just sensation. And what does it have to do with you? You see, so Sankhya wants to give you a little space, a little distance between you and your bodily pain. And you can try this, very applicable. The next time you feel something in the body that you don't like, especially when you come to my Wednesday yoga class, don't worry. I guarantee you, I will put you in a shape that will not uh, be pleasurable, (laughs) except in some masochistic sense, as Fabricio will testify. (laughs) The next time you either come to Wednesday yoga or in life, when you feel something in the body that you might have previously um, described as pain, as unpleasant, now you realize because you've been given this teaching, wait, the body changes. I notice the body is changing. How then can I be the body? No, I'm the one who watches the body. And if I am the one who watches oh, the body, get... then I am not in pain. Pain is occurring. This today. In... Hi, Lydia. Welcome. This is Pain is occurring in the same way a smell of lavender or a smell of garbage is occurring. It has nothing to do with me. It's just something outside, you see? Powerful thing. Can you imagine relating to your own sickness, to your own death, to your own decrepitness, the same way you would relate to the smell of lavender and garbage outside? Not to say you don't prefer one over the other. It's just not that big of a deal, you see? So one way we can describe enlightenment, Here's my, I suppose, first humble proposition in terms of, by way of definition. Enlightenment is the permanent, stable experience. Whoops, made an error there. Enlightenment is the permanent and stable recognition of the no big dealness of everything. How's that? (laughs) So Sankhya, as long as you realize you are not the body, a lot is done for you. A lot becomes less of a big deal, you know? And you know what's beautiful? You notice this with people in the final stages of their cancer. Sometimes cancer is the most spiritualizing force in the world, not always. Sometimes you can really bring out the darkness in in, in victims, but some people you will realize before the cancer were crotchety Ebenezer Scrooge business people just screwing everyone over and really upset and miserable and giving everyone they love a hard time. And then cancer came, they quit their job. They started to play trombone like they always wanted to in college they started to relax a little more and they started to realize that the things they thought were so important, like building a legacy and climbing the corporate ladder, weren't that important. Once this life gets put into perspective, once you die and sooner than you think, once you realize that something changes, you know, and cancer patients often, yes, as Red says, cancer patients often realize like, oh, I can relax. and 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 you will notice this about a lot of people Who who go through that at the end of their lives? They tend to be very relaxed, very open, very loving. Not always, but sometimes. So this is sankhya. Enlightenment in terms of sankhya uh, is the ability to just not be too concerned with the body. You know, it's very nice, very wonderful uh, achievement. Achievement unlocked. You can and and look at what this does for you in life. Does this mean you will stop going to the gym? No. I mean, you if you enjoy it, you'll do it. You'll do your asana. You'll go to the gym. You'll go eat chocolate cake. Um, you might not as much, you know, since it's just a sensation, it's no longer an attachment, like a craving, you'll still do those things. It's just that you can live with a tremendous sense of ease, a sense of relaxation, a sense of, Oh, I lost my arm. It's okay. I can still be in Deaf Leopard. I can still play, pour some sugar on me. You know, it's rock and roll. I just have to hit the two and four, you know, the drummer of Deaf Leopard doesn't have an arm. It's like that. It's, you can just kind of relax into your life. You know, it's no longer that big of a deal. Now, the same is true for your mind. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. Yes, we're in love together. Okay, now let's think about the mind. The mind changes, right? The mind is always changing. As Katy Perry sings, we've made this joke before, you change your clothes, rather sexist, like a girl changes. You change your thoughts like a girl changes clothes because you're hot and you're cold. You're yes and you're no. You change your mind. Like a girl, changes clothes. Yes, that's the the great sage of our time, right? So you know this is happening. You know the mind is changing. You know, in the Autobots, uh, Bumblebee is always speaking in little sound bites from the radio. That's what uh, your life as a spiritual practitioner is. Uh, teachings come to you through the radio, through music, uh, through eavesdropping. Like the world becomes your guru. Every moment is the mouthpiece of your guru. Anyway, um, as Katy Perry sings, the mind is always changing. And you know that. You recognize this. So then how can you be your mind? If you are the one noticing the change in the mind, you are not your mind. Any more than you are the body. Any more than you are this drink. You know, Any more than you are the smell of lavender outside your window. So chill, right? Because when you realize the entirety of personality is nothing more than a conglomeration of thoughts in the mind constantly changing as it withstands the barrage of real life. I thought I was a good person and then look what I did in the name of expediency. I thought I was a good mom, but why do my kids hate me? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like you have these ideas about yourself and they're always under seed, and you're watching them change and evolve. You're watching yourself change careers change ideas, change pronouns, change um, uh, whatever it is that you're changing, you are watching the personality change at an alarming rate. So how can you be that? If you're noticing it changing, how can you be that? After all, you don't notice the world moving because you're in the world, in the, the earth that is. But because you notice the mind changing, how can you be in the mind? How can you be the personality thought construct, you see? And now, not only are you free from threats to your body, you're also free from threats to your personality. So what happens if your name gets dragged through the mud? And tomorrow, all the magazines are calling you, I don't know, a fraud or a scandal. I I don't know what it is. Uh, We're all susceptible to this, whether in a very public way or in a personal way. We're all susceptible to defamation, to having our name dragged through the mud, to to, to blame, you know? And, and, And what's that to you? Once a person described yogi as a person, I think, <laughs> Fabricio, yes. You think it meant anything to Jesus that the fellow was called a fraud and a, a sham and, you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees would launch smear campaigns and censor him everywhere. Uh, it didn't matter to Socrates what the city of Athens thought about him. I mean, he was a vagabond on the streets. Just vibing, just chilling, perfectly relaxed, you know? And so you see in these enlightened beings like Jesus and Socrates, um, it doesn't matter to them what other people think because that only occurs in your mind, it only occurs to your personality. Does it really matter what your parents' opinion is of you? Uh, who, it's not you, it's, it's, it's a thought construct. And, and worst of all, it's not even your thought construct, it's theirs. <laughs> you know, your lover, your most intimate person in your life doesn't know you. They know what they have of you in their mind. They have their own you know, uh, thought construct and they conflate that with you and you have your own thought construct. It's no wonder that you and them are always in this disagreement because their notion of you suddenly creates friction with your notion of you and there's a little bit of tension there. What if you were to surrender that? Surrender your notion of you? It doesn't go away, mind you. If you were to bring Jesus, the Buddha, Lao Tzu, uh, and, and and Zoroaster or something all into the same room, they wouldn't be the same fella, you know? You know? Ananda Mahima will be weeping in the corner as she strokes someone's hair, being the ultimate mother. The Buddha would be in the kitchen talking your ear off about the 12 stages of reincarnation because he was a very wordy and verbose guy. Jesus would be singing Wonderwall, as we've often joked before on the couch, surrounded by some very fanatic but adoring fans. You know, Lao Tzu would be drawing some inscrutable flower on the wall or on a rock. You know, like these people would be incredibly idiosyncratic and different. Yet, when each of them said I, it would be the same I talking to you. Because when you look into their eyes, you will be looking at the same thing. You'll be looking at you. <laughs> you will be seen when you are, when you're with a guru, guru. you will finally be seen because the guru is your clue, as Fabricio points out, to reality. The guru looks at you not as a mind, nor as a body, but something else as what I cannot say. But for now, let's just uh, ease into this understanding that according to Sankhya, it's the understanding that you are not the mind, nor are you the body. So relax. Enlightenment is the ease of being, recognizing that you cannot be threatened. The, The text, A Course in Miracles, a beautiful text opens like this. Nothing real can be harmed. Nothing unreal exists, which is textbook Advaita Vedanta. That's a Christian mystical text, you know? Okay, so when Jesus is on the cross, do you think he feels pain? Interesting question. Did not this master scream, Father, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, he screamed. So it was said. He cried on the cross. You know, there was pain. There was real pain there. But pain for Jesus? No. Pain for Jesus's body. Maybe even for Jesus's mind. He's crying out, Father, what the fuck, man? You know, he's crying that out. But there is still a dimension to Jesus. A dimension waiting to be discovered in all of us. A dimension that is here now, that is capable, not despite of, but because of, and through the pain in the body and the mind, is able to look the Roman centurion in the eye. And as the nail is going in, this man is able to say, forgive them, Father. You know They, they know not what they do. And it's not because there's no ow. Yes, there is an owie in the arm of Jesus, in the mind of Jesus, but not in Jesus. Because Jesus is not the body, nor is he the mind. So let's look mm-hmm. at the sankhya of Jesus. I don't know. The Christ is coming through rather strongly. Peace and blessings be upon him. The sankhya of Jesus is very easy to find. So when the Pharisees and Sadducees are debating him, the big problem they have with him is not just that he heals people on Saturday. Of course, that's that's a big problem. Uh, but also that he's so young. I mean, look at this young, rebellious upstart um, teaching this stuff. I, and they were all, they were wizened elders of the Jewish church, you know, with long beards and and, and established positions, many of them had been in office for their entire lifetime. Who was this fool in like slippers at age 20-something, age 30-something, telling people what the nature of God was? What do you mean I come to fulfill the law, not to break it, when you're working Saturdays? When you're telling me I can't stone the woman because I too am a sinner, what do you mean I can't stone women in my own city? Pretty weird, right? What do you mean the way to defeat my enemies is to forgive them and love them? <laughs> I think we forget how radical that guy was. Hang out with prostitutes, tax collectors, you know, give give away everything you own. Many people say they follow the way of Jesus and yet they have portions. How weird, you know? <laughs> Why are you at Sears on Christmas? <laughs> Buying things. Anyway. So Jesus, the ultimate anti-consumerist uh, forgiveness hippie, um, was really upsetting to these elders. And and their big problem was his age. And they would say to him, who are you to be teaching this? You're so young. Uh, what's your problem? And, and he would say to them, before Abraham, I was. He's not saying Abraham was wrong. He hasn't come to start a new religion. He just said, before all of that, I am. How could he be saying that in any sense of the body or the mind? The body was never there thousands of years ago. The mind of Jesus wasn't really there. And he wasn't really into the mind. He was more of a heart guy, right? More of a bhakta than a jnani. um But notice, how could Jesus have said I am before Moses was in any other sense than a sankhian sense? In the sense that your aparoksha jnana sense of I is not the body, nor is it the mind. Okay, so so here's enlightenment to sankhya. Just recognizing this, recognizing that you are not the body and mind. Actually recognizing it is sankyan enlightenment. So essentially, the enlightenment, the word enlightenment, is to sankhya the answer to the question, "Who am I?" You know, if you can ask this question, "Who am I?" and if you can actually, in your own direct immediacy of experience, not quite experience, but immediate uh, sense know that you are not the body and the mind, that you are the subject, the I amness." That's enough. That's enlightenment. What more do you want? You know? What more do you want? It's the fountain of youth. It's immortality. Lead us from death unto immortality. Do you see? The body will die. If you think enlightenment is keeping the body alive, you're in trouble. As Ramakrishna would often speak rather ill, peace and blessings be upon him, rather ill of Hatha Yoga. He would say, "Don't do hatha yoga, because the hatha yogas were interested in hatha yogis were interested in keeping their body alive indefinitely." You know, and he would say that's a problem because that's not enlightenment. You know, it's, it's fixation with the body. The body will die. The body will get old, no matter how many downward dogs you do. And on Wednesday, we'll do a lot. <laughs> the mind will die. The the personality dies every day. Hopefully, by the end of this talk, you would have died. I wish that for all of us that who we are at the end of this talk is different from who we were at the beginning. The next book you finish, I hope it kills you. You know, I hope that book ends the person you were before it and gives you the person you are after it. (laughs) Fabricio, 108-year-old Florida man dies despite doing yoga every day. (laughs) This just in, 108-year-old man dies despite doing yoga every day. (laughs) Yeah, so you see, enlightenment cannot be the holy grail for the body or the mind. It's it's this recognition of the I am. Now, here's the next point we want to make, right? This is subtler. Can it be given to you? Do you get your I am? Well, in some sense, yes. When you recognize it, you might think you are getting it. But hasn't it always been there? It was there before this talk. It is here now, and it will be here after this talk. It's not something you perceive with your senses. Nor is it something that needs to be told to you. I don't need to tell you the kingdom of heaven is within you. It's nearer to you than that. (laughs) You know, the problem, if I say you have a soul or you have the kingdom of heaven within you, you know what you will do? You'll go looking for it. You'll close your eyes and be like, okay, I'm going to turn my eyes inward. Where is the kingdom of heaven looking? It's the kingdom of heaven that's looking for the kingdom of heaven. How odd, you know? Um, How can you have a soul when it's the soul that enables you to have everything else. Soul is not what you have. Kingdom of heaven is not what you find. It's it's what you are. And please don't take my word for it, should be obvious. Right now, it should be obvious to you that beyond the body and the mind, there is a center. It's non-conceptual, it's non-verbal. It's not a matter of sensing or perceiving or experiencing. It's subtler than that. It's just your innate sense of being here, of, of identity, of subjecthood. And you've confused this subjecthood with the mind and its contents and the body and its sensations. Hence the suffering. And more than that, hence the feeling of inauthenticity. See, it's not just suffering or the mind and body that brings you here. Yes, exactly, Caleb. It's like looking for glasses that are already in your face, it's like looking for eyeballs. <laughs> mm. Now, Look at this. It's not just suffering that brings you here. For the Buddha, for the Sankyans, the goal was to end suffering in the body and the mind. And suffering will bring you here. One of the best ways to bring you to us. But another way you can come here is through success. You see, if you take yourself to be the body, you can very successfully create a beautiful one. You know, you can just work out and eat great food and get vitamins every day or vitamins as Americans say it you know, you can, you can just really work on it. You can really work on the body and you'll have a beautiful one, but then you know what will happen. You will look in the mirror at this beautiful body and you will feel a kind of, I'm a sham. You won't feel like you've accomplished anything or that you've changed, you know, don't take my word for it, build your body up. And then notice some moments between reps, between dissolving the vitamins in the water in a moment, you'll be like, I, this body is beautiful, but I still feel a kind of inauthenticity about it. You know, pick up the autobiography of any bodybuilder. There's something very inauthentic about it. And then try to become uh, famous, go out and become a big rock star, make a lot of money, be a big business mogul. own 50 buildings, name them after yourself, you know, and then you look in the mirror and there it is again, that same inauthenticity, imposter syndrome. In fact, I'm reminded that this is how Ram Dass' journey begins. As you will read in his seminal Be Here Now, Ram Das talks about when he was still Dr. Alpert, R- Rupert or Richard or Alpert or something, when he was still that doctor, he realized a kind of ingenuity, inauthenticity, insincerity about his life. Even after accumulating the yacht and throwing nice dinner parties, wait till the next party you go to. This is a good, good, parties are really good for it, you know? You're there, you're partying, Um, you, you had just the right amount to drink. You were on the dance floor. You were like, yeah. you were like having a great time. You met a nice stranger. And then on the walk home, on the subway back to Astoria, you know, in New York, sorry, just an experience that came to mind on the subway, on the walk home, suddenly there's a feeling of like, wow, that was awesome. It was awesome. I guess. I suppose it was awesome. I I think I'm happy. I feel fulfilled, right? You see, no matter what, the peak of beauty, as Donna beautifully says, the peak of success, the peak of any experience is the same as suffering. The deepest valley of suffering and the highest peak of success is the one same plateau of inauthenticity, of insincerity, of feeling like an imposter. Because- yes. You said thank you, <laughs> You're totally alone. It's a very tragic aloneness. And you know what? The sad thing about success, and even the sad thing about failure, but maybe more about success, your friends stop being your friends. They're they they're in a relationship with your success. Do you know what I mean? When you're beautiful, you start to feel this acute sense of nobody loves me. They love this body. They love the social capital that comes with this body. And then when you become really successful in the movies or music or whatever, you go, oh, all my friends are just here for the fame. They're remora fish, you know, study any autobiography and you will realize how lonely it is up there. You know, Michael Jackson could, to make no assumptions, but the people that really made it to the top are probably most acutely aware of this. And there's a kind of desperation. Good. The desperation of suffering and the desperation of success is really the desperation of trying to find yourself, you know, especially when you suffer, you're having this Job moment where you're on your knees, looking at the sky, being like, why me? Essentially the most important part of that question, why me is the me. It, it's not, why is this happening to me? It's why me? What better question is, what is me? When you're, when you're succeeding, you're like, nobody loves me for me, but still you're looking for me. Are you not? You see, enlightenment begins with the quest of who am I? There is no coincidence that Western culture, the ultimate epitome of Western philosophy, at least let's just say the Greek Greek philosophy is Notisiauton. The engraving, the, the dictum at the top of the uh, temple of the Oracle of Delphi, it said siouton. Now you're a Greek, you know, like a Spartan general. And you're going to this oracle for deep esoteric knowledge. And what does the oracle say to you? Perhaps disappointingly, know thyself. I have nothing to teach you. I can tell you when the war should start or when the war should end. But really, look look at the sign. It's like Wayne's World. No stairway. Nothi sioutan. You know, just just know thyself. No stairway. Know thyself. (laughs) Yes. Uh, For those of you who are enjoying these 2000s, 90s movies reference, thank you. You know, (laughs) thank you for watching Wayne's World. Thank you for watching Clueless. Thank you for listening to David Lee Raw. I would have nothing to say to you if I did not have these coordinates of. of (laughs) (laughs) Yes, so here we are in this predicament of looking for who we are. Enlightenment, according to Sankhya, is when you know, when you actually know. And then everything changes about you. They say, uh, you know, an enlightened person. Yes, cannot forget the hairbands. I've got one right here. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so, um, <laughs> so um, enlightenment is when you know, and you know, when you know that, you know, that's what enlightenment is. You, you always are it. It's just now a matter of recognizing it, knowing it. So it's not something that can be added onto you. It's not something that can be taken away from you. It, it's more you than anything is you. That's why in the Quran, it says something beautiful. In fact, when Paul said the kingdom of heaven is within you, it's exactly what the prophet, peace and blessings be upon him said, with the God is closer to your alfala, is closer to you than your jugular vein. I mean, it's poetic. Jugular vein is what gives you life. And people are like, oh, he's here actually. No, dude, the prophet meant that he's nearer to you than your life. You know, the kingdom of heaven isn't within, It's it's not within you. You know, you've just created a new place to look. It's not that, it's closer than that, you know? It's not something you can get, it's not something you can take away. So the first one, and and now we're coming to bring it all together, the first obstacle to your enlightenment, the biggest obstacle to your enlightenment, in fact, the only obstacle to your enlightenment, very poignantly, very dramatically, and very humorously is your searching for it. The biggest obstacle to your enlightenment is assuming that it is an object. It's an object of experience. Here's why it's so forgivable to make that mistake. For most of us, some of us are 20, some of us are 60, some of us are 17. For most of that period, you've been indoctrinated to look for objects. You were told as a child, um, you want good grades as an object, go and get them because that will give you another object, which is internship. Go and get that because that will give you another object, money, because that will give you a car. And then you'll be able to experience a sense of belonging or being special in your community. You've been trained to look for objects in the world. It's only natural when you come to realize that the objects of the world don't satisfy you. It's only natural to start looking for objects in the spiritual world. You see, it's almost like uh, you were told to get a car and you got the car and then it didn't make you happy. It didn't make you feel secure or special. It actually just increased your anxiety because now you're so afraid to scratch it. And then you park it outside a club. And the only place that you could park was like five streets down. And you happen to be in Koreatown and you're like scared. You're at the party and you're just scared. And you realize, oh, I got the car. I got the house so I could have a sense of security. But having the car in the house has done more damage to my sense of security than not having. it. Then you realize, okay, I don't want cars or houses anymore. Now I want culture. Yeah, I want to be able to like cite stuff. I want to be able to make cultural references. I don't want to just... Quote Robert Smith from The Cure. I want to quote Goethe. I want to quote Keats. A thing of beauty is a joy forever. How cultured am I, huh? What a nice dinner party guest. How intelligent, how sophisticated. See, that's the new object that we want. So once we have the cars or whatever, it's good to have the cars, It's good to have the mansion, only to realize that it didn't make you feel any different. Then you want cultural goods, objects. I want to read books. I want to go to seminars. I want to go to Italy so I can talk about having gone to Italy. You know, I'll tell you a funny story. I once had a, a roommate. Ah, maybe the story is too personal. <laughs> Never mind. But, but sometimes people go to places um, so that they can be the kind of person who had gone to those places. We used to make a joke that that roommate was in a relationship, not just to the many people they were in a relationship with, but also to her uh, parent's that's the story <laughs> their main was Paris <laughs> but yes <laughs> no the the humor of the situation was someone was trying to describe that like situation on a on a whiteboard and they were drawing this individual and the several individuals in which they were in a relationship, and it was all done in quiet you know and then that person drew a line to a a, a new entity it was Paris it's just so funny but you see we're looking for for all love no love lost no love lost just just funny predicament you know so um if you're watching this just just you know sorry i'm poking fun at you (laughs) but you see it it is funny it is funny that once we collect material objects we want to collect culture so the tattoos come become a way to show culture yes red it it is true it is true it's kind of hard not to paris you know it's very hard not to um, and that's good. It's good. But you'll notice this with people. They love to travel to places. Like, I want to go to Senegal so I can talk about when I was in Senegal. Yes. Red is actually in Paris. No, Paris is in you, Red. You're not in Paris. Paris is in you. <laughs> okay. So um, now uh, we collect these cultural artifacts, cultural objects. Uh, we want to show people something about us. And then we realize, okay, those experiences weren't really it either. It was good to have. It was good to go on that trip only to realize that it wasn't where it's at. Okay, cool. Then we go for cultural objects. Then we start to look for spiritual objects. You see, what we realize is none of the objects in the marketplace have satisfied me. So I heard a rumor at some dinner party in between discussing, which was Mozart's magnum opus, in between that discussion, I heard a rumor that there was a group of mystics up in the Himalayas who had some scrolls. And if you blew the dust off the scrolls and rolled it open, you would be confronted with the ultimate object, the holy grail. It's called enlightenment. It's the ultimate object. It's the best thing you can experience. It gives you security like you want with the cars. It gives you um, validation like you wanted with the fame. It gives you a sense of belonging like you wanted with the cultural goods. All of it, but without any of the downsides. The ultimate object. The irony is yes, you do get all of those things. Um, Find me first and these will be added onto you. Sure, but we make this mistake. Okay, it's an object and now I have to go and get it. Now here's the mistake, right? It's the only thing that's not an object. Who you are, finding out the answer to the question, who am I, is the only thing in this world that cannot be objectified. Because in relation to it, Everything is an object. You see, South Asian philosophy is about profound insights into ordinary everyday experience. The reason we don't have to propose many things on faith is because we can appeal to your immediate experience of here and now. You right now can verify this, this teaching. You are a subject, meaning you are this sense of I amness experiencing an object. It doesn't matter if that object is matcha or like Yehovah. It doesn't matter if you are experiencing an object in the waking world or in a beautiful lucid dream. Whether you're in Vaikuntha or Kailash or heaven, whether you're in uh, any of the Sephiroths, whether you're in your apartment on Main Street, wherever you are, there's one fundamental thing. It's you and one other thing or several other things, but it's you, the subject, with objects. And the whole point of enlightenment is to realize you are none of those objects, you are the subject. So if you're looking for enlightenment as an object, you will always be disappointed because you will miss it. So I'll close this one point with just a funny story. A washerman uh, found a jewel. No, he always had a jewel, sorry. He always had this jewel and he would wash clothes with the jewel. You know, in India, we have the Dobis, they wash clothes. So he's just washing clothes with the jewel. And he never knew what it was, but he always kind of had this intuition that it was valuable. So he took the jewel to a vegetable seller and he said, hey, what's this worth? And the vegetable seller was like, "Uh, I don't really know. It looks good. I'll pay you this much for it. I'll give you these many uh, radishes for it. And it was quite a hefty amount of radishes. But the washerman was still kind of hesitant to part with the jewel for some radishes. And we do this every day. We part with jewels for radishes, you know? <laughs> Just feel into that one. So the, the washerman didn't really want to part with the jewel. So he went to like some other vendor, like a meat vendor or something, unlikely in India, but some other vendor, you know? And, and he said, Oh, well, what's this worth? And the other guy was like, I don't know, but how about I give you five hammers and six anvils for it? I'm a blacksmith. I, it looks cool. I'll buy it off of you. And, and, and he wasn't willing to part with it for that either. So eventually, after many vendors, he finally meets a jewel vendor, the spiritual teacher. And the jewel vendor says to him, my boy, thank God you didn't sell this to the uh, vegetable seller or to the blacksmith. What you have is worth way more than those radishes. It's worth way more than those anvils and hammers. In fact, it's worth way more than this entire kingdom. And like that, in one fell swoop, once the man recognized the worth of what he had, he had it all. All his wants were gone. You see? Yes, exactly. Exactly, Z. (laughs) It's just that. Manikam, oh, mani You know, so it's like once you recognize the worth of what it is we're talking about, what more do you want? Now here, it's not the case that he didn't have the jewel and he acquired it. It's not the case that he needed to scrub it clean. It was always perfect. It was always in his possession. He just needed some help recognizing it. That's it. The only thing that this person needed was a recognition, just a gentle nudge from someone to realize what it is he always had. And, And here's another clincher in the story. It's not just that he always had it. This next point is important. It's not just that he always had it. He was using the goddamn thing, he was using it to wash clothes. It was something of utility. And even now, without it, we wouldn't have this experience. You know, if it wasn't, for my eyes, I would not see the cup of matcha. But if it wasn't for my mind, I would not see the cup of matcha. But if it wasn't for my awareness, I would not see the cup of matcha. Do you realize how you are scrubbing your clothes clean with your I amness in every moment? Without this I amness, there are no moments. There are no teachers. There is no matrix. And so that should show you that this matrix, this, this world depends entirely on you. Why do you feel so disempowered? I mean, this reality literally was constructed in this moment by you. Without you, it would fall like so many bricks without a foundation and not even that. So why do you feel oppressed, abused? Why do you feel pushed around? Who is there to push you around that you aren't putting there yourself? That's why in the Pratanya Bighniya Hridayam, a tantric text, actually a very beautiful tantric text, because uh, Pratanya Bhigna means recognition. Hridaya means essence or heart. So the text means the essence of recognition. Understanding that enlightenment is simply recognition. The opening two lines, as we've explored together, are as follows. Chitti, swatantra, Siddha Hettuhu. Chitti, awareness, swatantra, self-expanding or rather free, autonomous, is the sole cause for the magic of everything. And think of it this way. If indeed the double slit experiment in quantum mechanics showed us that our observation changes reality, if indeed your self-help books like The Law of Attraction, what is it? The Secret showed you that, you know, surely you're beginning to realize now that this world isn't anything other than what you make it. This world really isn't, honestly, in our experience right now, anything other than the experience you are emanating in this moment. Cheers, Daniel and Isha. Do you realize that this moment cannot be anything other than what you're putting there? And think of this, you're okay, like now there's a group somewhere in the world and they're suffering and you feel awful about that. Are they here now? And you might say, oh, this is just hiding under a rock. You're ignoring the world. But how do you know? How do you know there is what's going on as the news told you? Can you see that right now? No, you take it on inference. You've been wrong before. And most importantly, it wouldn't be the case if you weren't maintaining that thought structure, if you weren't maintaining your fixation upon uh, forest burning down, ignoring the fact that forests are being replanted in Ethiopia. I'm making a reference to that time when the Amazon burned down and everyone was like, oh, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. But in that same week, Ethiopia planted 2 million trees for Ethiopia plant a tree day. But we didn't want to focus on that. So you see, your reality is a matter of your attention. Are you here with your matcha? If not, matcha doesn't exist for you. But if you are with the matcha, oh, it's exquisite, right? It's it's so present, mm. delightful. So it seems like attention emanates this world. Attention is going to say where energy goes. Uh, attention goes, energy flows. So you are emanating this world at every moment. Hence, kitty svatantra. Awareness is free. Camus makes the same point. While you might have to push the rock up. The gods, as capricious as they might be, cannot take away your freedom to make what meaning you would out of it. Does it, as as Ram Dass beautifully says again, either you do it like a big weight or you do it like it's all part of a dance, you know, chopping wood and carrying water can be a chore that you hate to do, or it can be a work of art, an ideal moment of self-expression. They say, if you want to know a master, watch them cut an apple. It will bring you to tears. It will be like Mozart composing. Watch them tie their shoes. Watch them fold their clothes. Because it's it's not about what you do. It's about how awareness is packaging that experience to you. You know, so that's the first thing. Chitti swatantra, visva siddha Your awareness is the sole cause of all these things. The next line is even more beautiful. Svichaya swabitao. Vishvam unmilayati, which translates to out of your own innate desire, out of your own material, Svabittau, Bitti means like canvas. On the canvas that is yourself, this entire universe, all things unfolded. You know, so what is the world made of? Consciousness. Why? Because without consciousness it wouldn't be. You can test this. Plug your ears, my words are gone. Or actually not really, it doesn't really work that well. But close your eyes and the matcha is gone. And you might say, no, it's still there, but now you're taking things on faith. Why is it there? Why do you believe that? Why are you so content to accept things that are not in your experience now? You know? Okay, so big stuff. If you look for enlightenment as the ultimate object, if you look for enlightenment as a way that something's going to change, like when you get it, this won't be the same. You won't find it. That's the irony. And that's why you hear jokes like the fish ask the guru fish, I'm thirsty. Where's the water? And the guru fish laughed and laughed and laughed. Or jokes like, look at them. They sit by the Ganga and they die of thirst. Jokes like the washerman and the jewel story. You know, all these jokes uh, are, are fancy until we realize that they're all true. And then they're even funnier and even sadder because we spent 30 years looking for something to be different in our lives. We wanted to be different. We wanted the world to be different. We wanted things to stop hurting. We wanted things to stop being so heavy. And then we realized um, that was the problem. The problem was looking for things to be different than, uh, than what they are now. Everything you need for enlightenment is right here. That's why it's as close to you as your next breath, as close to you as your jugular vein, and even closer to you than that. Hmm? So that's the first obstacle. And I'll blitz through the next four. It's very simple. The first one is the biggest and the hardest to really grasp. But when you stop looking for objects, you find enlightenment. Maybe one more point to make here. Uh, This is from Rupert Spira. He said something interesting. He said, what if I gave you two choices right now? On one hand, you could get a Ferrari, brand new Ferrari. But here's the game. If you got it, you would be sad. You'd be depressed. It would bring you great, extraordinary grief. Would you want it? And then on the other hand, I give you something else. I give you a third-hand Ford. A beat up like Mazda or something, or a Prius. I know Americans don't like the Prius. Like a beat up third hand Prius, like a despicable car. No offense, Prius. And, and I give that to you. But the game says you will be happy. Which will you choose? It's obvious the third hand Mazda or, or Prius or whatever. Because it was never the Ferrari or the Prius you wanted, right? It was happiness. What you want is happiness. And not really. What you wanted was ease of being. You just wanted to be less heavy. Less serious, less, uh, less suffering, more, more what, you ask? Maybe more bliss? No, there's not quite an, it's something anxiety-ridden about ecstasy. You know, not, not quite. You wanted an ease of being. You wanted some sense of relief. What could bring you more relief than the simple recognition that the I am is beyond all things, cannot be touched by all things? And not just that, it, it emanated all things. <laughs> 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 kind of weird. Grace just texted ease of being. And it felt like that horror movie, The Call, it's coming from inside the house because she's inside the house. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know, my internet gave out. So here I am, refugee in this house. (laughs) And she's a Lakshmi Bhakta. So we're getting a lot of Saraswati and Lakshmi coming through right now. Now, um, if you could feel into this ease of being that you are, what more do you want? I mean, is it really that important that you talk to angels? Why? The I am will be there as much as it is now. Is it really that important that you like bliss out in Nirvikalpa Samadhi for three months? Why? The I am will be as there as it is here now. What's different between now and that experience that's really that important, really that significant? And and ask this question, journal about it. What are you looking for? Why do you want to talk to angels? Why do you want the Ferrari? What will it give you that you can't already experience for yourself? See, now there are four other errors. So this first part of class, this first hour and a half might've been a little dense and and, and heavy and like, okay, sure. I know enlightenment is not an object. I still seek for it as an object. I can't quite change that about myself. Okay. Four other obstacles. The next obstacle is a very big one. It's especially a big one for gyanis, for philosophers, not being in your body. You see... In order to appreciate the I am, you must appreciate totality in this moment. You're never going to appreciate the absolute center of experience if you're fixating on one aspect of this experience. Can you dig that? Often we are so fixated on our thoughts and our emotions that we neglect the other coordinates of awareness, such as sensation in the body. So asana is very powerful because it grounds you in sensation. So now a new component is added. There was thinking and also feeling. Remember, we don't distinguish between thoughts and emotions. They're just chitta vrittis, movements in consciousness. But added on to that, there is sensation in the body. Then we draw you to the breath and you're listening for the sound of the breath, for the feeling of the breath in the belly and the nose. What's going on is your moment is expanding in richness. It's deepening. You see, there's more depth to this moment. And you're never going to experience that depth if your relationship to your body is suffering. If you don't want to feel your feet, if you don't want to be in your skin, if you don't want to feel your blood flowing and your electricity vibrating at your fingertips, enlightenment is near impossible because it includes all of that. At the point at which you are able to include in your attention all things, you will at that point realize that none of those things really exist except by virtue of you. So one place to look is in Islam. In the religion of Islam, there is a very powerful understanding of this principle that you cannot pray without involving the body as well. So if you observe an Islamic prayer five times a day, they do a sun salutation. And if you observe the Sufis, they have all sorts of things like the Samazan. Samazans will dance. It's called the Sema'a. And in the Salaa, the prayer, the Muslim prayer, it's called the Salaa. If you watch how it happens, you will notice there's a child's pose in there. There's a kind of plank pose or a downward dog. It involves a lot of bending and standing, bending and standing. If you watch a Christian prayer, it involves a lot of movement. If you watch shamans, They sway or do the step dance. You cannot have enlightenment without dance. It's a painful fact. Uh, And it's a fact that we ignore because a lot of us have a lot of problems in our relationship with our body, you know? Justifiably so. It's been through quite a debacle, quite a journey, so to speak. But until we heal that relationship, and this is why we say enlightenment is not healing, but there must be some level of integrating the body. Yes, the body knows the score, precisely. However enlightened you think you are, Shir Shasin will show you otherwise. (laughs) If you think you've conquered the fear of death, come and stand on your head with me. We'll see. We'll see whether you've really conquered the fear of death. (laughs) So you see, the thing about uh, Gyanis, the thing about being intellectual and learning about spiritual philosophy is you are always susceptible to delusion, to self-deception, because you want to feel like you're enlightened already. And in fact, it's very easy to kind of trick yourself into feeling that. Um, And when you don't feel the body, you can kind of divorce yourself from all the blockages of the body, you know? All the kind of tensions, like I'm still mad at my dad, actually. Right here in the hip, doesn't lie. There's a tightness in the hip. Why? Because as much as I think I'm over it, I'm not. It's here, you know? And then people who think they've, you know, psychologically won the lottery and finished with all their complexes, come and sit in supta badho for five minutes. You will weep. You will weep because when your hips open, it will release emotion that was stored as muscle memory that you didn't even know was there. So that's the second obstacle. The first obstacle is seeking enlightenment as an object. You know, seeking is the biggest obstacle to finding. The second obstacle is not being in your body, at least not being open to experiencing the totality of this moment, which includes the skin, includes the toes, you know, pick them up, spread them, put them back down one at a time, you know. Yes, so that's the second obstacle, not being in your body. The third obstacle is a lack of consistency. There is a deep desire in you to be enlightened, to at least recognize the enlightenment you already have. But your desire is not yet matched by zeal. <laughs> in other words, it's not yet cooked. It's not right. You're still allured by things in the world, like internships, like, I don't know, what have you. You're still looking for money and power. That's okay. Go and get them. You know, in fact, put aside the spirituality stuff, just, just go and and be that, be the ultimate CEO, mogul. Uh, a, a warlord, rock musician, I don't know, whatever it is you want to do, eat that jar of peanut butter, eat the whole damn thing, as Ram Dass would say, you know, um, because until you do that, um, you are always at risk of thinking something is more important than practicing today. Spirituality will be an ornament, not the centerpiece. It will be something you do on the weekends, something you do thrice a week at the yoga class that's part of your day. And it, to be real, will bring you some very real benefits. You'll feel great after your one hour of yoga, you know, you'll feel very calm after your bhajan or meditation. It'll be great. You'll be very happy, Uh, but not lastingly. It won't be enlightenment. It will be palliative care. You know, so another thing, here's what's funny. You know how I said you have to be in your body? Uh, If that was true, right? If all it took to be enlightened, or at least recognize the enlightenment you already are, if all it took was asana, salah, Uh, dance, then every dancer, every uh, California yoga teacher would be enlightened, right? If all it took was three hours of asana a day, what about those people who are madly doing that? Why aren't they enlightened? And I was very perplexed by this, and, and I investigated in my own life, and one day I was holding a supta badokunasana, about 12 minutes in, I thought about something. I, I, my meditation was interrupted by a thought and it was a memory. Naturally, when you do hip openers, memories come. It was a memory of some, of of a situation in my past in a relationship in which I had been deeply hurt. You know, my sense of self had been threatened by a feeling of, of betrayal, like hurt. And that feeling came and suddenly my hips tightened up and that badho actually became dangerous. There was a a moment there where I realized I had lost the flexibility I had a moment ago. A moment ago, the knees were on the floor, the hips were open, but the thought, the thought or memory, the emotional residue of years ago had actually in real time tightened the, the hips. You see, flexibility, ease in the body is deeply connected to emotions, to your feeling, to what's going on in the mind. Now, if this can happen in real time, notice what happens after your asana class. So picture this, you go to, I don't know, whatever yoga studio you're going to down the street or on Zoom, you go to the class. During the class, it's an adventure, you know? And in our classes, they tend to go on quite long. Yes, forgive me, I'm working on that. But it's an adventure. After about two hours of doing asana, you met yourself, you lost yourself, you sweated, you cried, it's an adventure. And you get to the end of that and there's a tremendous release. There's a feeling of, I don't feel so heavy anymore. I feel so light. I feel so beautiful. Then you get in your car and you're driving on the highway and somebody cuts you off and the tension returns. You get home and your partner says take out the trash. The tension returns. The partner says something that picks up the thread of an old fight. The tension returns and the class in 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 a real, real sense has been undone. Everything that you have achieved in the body has been lost, so to speak, because you have successfully re-traumatized yourself. So uh, Reich's bo- yes, Wilhelm Reich is a good place to to, to look at. Uh, Wilhelm Reich, his his book "Function of an Orgasm" is a great text. You know, one of one of the best amongst the Freudian Jungians. Reich is really up there. Ugh. Now it's so important that you're in your body, you know, stop looking for enlightenment, you know, stop seeking. You don't need so many lectures, so many books it's here. Um, but maybe you do need all the lectures in the books to an extent, but ultimately you don't (laughs) stop seeking. Secondly, um, be in the body, but also consistency do consistently practice because if you don't practice every day, um, you won't, gain much ground. And, and remember, this is I'm speaking relatively. Here's the paradox. You don't need to get anything. You don't need to gain any ground. It's just we're talking on the level of the body and the mind. The practice at this point is just bringing your body and mind into alignment with what is already the case. So we practice asana daily. But after you practice asana, you cannot just be like, I'm done. Close the book. I did it. I did my practice. I meditated. I did my asana. No, Your practice continues with you in the car, because if you go in the car and you get upset because someone cut in front of you, what was the asana for? You'll get the same tensions in the body. And yes, here's the beautiful thing about consistency. There is a cumulative effect. In other words, you are outpacing your trauma. It's just a fact the mind will re-traumatize you 21,600 times a day. I mean, that's the number of breaths you take, right? Your mind will bring memories that will re-traumatize you. Yes, it happened to you. And I'm sorry that it did. Uh, But the problem is that you continue it happening to you. You're replaying it. It, And it's not your fault. It's just the mind trying to protect you from future instances like that. So as long as you are fixated on your trauma, meaning as long as you are re-traumatizing yourself, you're not really going to bring the body and mind into alignment with the enlightenment you already are. That's why consistency is key. You must practice every day. And you must practice in increasing quantities and quality. Ayengar said this. He said, every day, ask yourself, has my practice evolved in terms of quantity or quality? Actually, we'd say quality is more important than quantity. But hey, we're Indians. More is always better. More colors, more spices, more philosophies. <laughs> Even look at the Indian Buddhists. More deities. That's you know, Padma Sambhava from Udhyana was like, what about Manjushri and Tara? And let's have Chundi Buddha and Avalokiteshvara. We weren't satisfied with our Arhat We had to add some extra bodhisattvas and gods. Uh, more is more, we say in India. More is more. <laughs> so Iyengar would say, is my practice, practice today, did it increase in quantity or quality? If not quantity, at least quality. But that consistency over time, that's what gives you the cumulative momentum over um, the re traumatizing. You know, I can't, yes, RJ, I will. I will. Actually, it's a great question. God willing, I will. Now, it's, it's not just a matter of saying, hey, guys, you're re uh, people, you're re traumatizing yourself. Stop. What a nonsense instruction. How do you stop re traumatizing yourself? No, the mind will continue to replay this event. What you can do, though, is not resist that. That will happen. You can out, not outrun it, but you can outpace it with your practice. So as much as you get traumatized, you deal with it. Traumatized, you deal with it. Traumatized, you deal with it. And then soon, your practice is ahead of your trauma and guaranteed those thoughts will fall away. Whatever obsessive thought you have right now, whatever emotional overwhelm you feel, if your practice is consistent and steady in time, if not six months, if not a year, if you genuinely, sincerely, are increasing in quantity and quality every day, you will outpace your trauma. And and you know what, this is different for all of us. We are all carrying different karmic loads, so to speak. Some of us need to practice much more. That's just, this. it's sad, but true. Some of us need to practice hours a day for things that other people only could do one retreat for. We're all starting in a different place and where you are is just where you need to be. Yes. So, Practice every day. Now, the question, as RJ asked, is how do I do that? How do I apply myself to a consistent practice? Okay, you know how I said there are five obstacles to enlightenment? Um, object, looking for it as an object, not being in your body. Um, and then this one is not being consistent. Let's add like kind of exciting. Here are the four ways to stay consistent. We like lists, list, okay? Four ways to stay consistent. One, don't practice alone. Actually, this is number five in our list as well, but don't practice it. Find a sangha and hold each other accountable. You know, don't just meet on Monday night. Start groups with each other, especially those of you who live in the same parts of the world. Um, if you're vaccinated, as, uh, meet, you know, go to the park and meet each other. Be in sangha with one another and practice together and have your WhatsApps and discords and ask each other about your practice. Go on Insight Timer and create a little group So you can keep each other accountable to meditating every day. If you're on your own, it won't be fun. You won't do it. But if you're in a group, it's like fun. It's like, oh, you know, we're doing this together. Not just that. Yeah, pest each other. Be like, did you meditate today? Real friends don't let friends go to sleep without sadhana. You know, real friends show up at the house at 3 a.m. Having seen that you're skipping that day to bang pots and pans so you don't. Yeah, I know you could use the extra hour of sleep. Suck it up. Practice. Real friends will drag you out of bed for practice. <laughs> mm. But don't do this with people who aren't on the path, okay? Don't be missionaries. Don't go to your people who are still enjoying the movie and be like, "You're coming with me." Don't go to your husbands and be like, "You're coming to yoga." No. I'm talking about fellowship with people who are on the path, and the beauty th- the beauty of this is that most people in this sangha are on the path with the same degree of intensity. Many of you have come every Monday, consistently coming to Mondays and Thursdays. Many of you are here on Wednesdays and Fridays and Sundays. Many of you recognize each other in Sangha. Reach out, you know, form, form tribes. And, and, and this will be your Kula. You know, it's, it's your Sangha. As the Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha said, holy companions are the whole of holy life. A little beautiful phrase. Um, so there are, there are a few benefits to this. One, it keeps you accountable. Two, it makes it funner because there are people around you. But three, and this is the most important, there is, there's something to be said, whether you're looking to quantum physics or the Bible, there is something to be said about practicing together. As Jesus, the Christ, peace and blessings be upon him said, wherever two or more are gathered, his prerequisite, the bar was really low, just two, wherever two or more are gathered in my name, there I am also. Notice I am this. It's, it's, it's easy to be present with other people. That's why parties are so great. You know, you're like present. You're more present with other people than you are in your bedroom, looking at your lava lamp, thinking about your future or past, you know? So that's the thing. You can be consistent by finding people to be consistent with. Biggest thing that will help you. The second thing is, write a list right now of excuses you have for not practicing. You will notice they are the same excuses. And in fact, they are very reasonable. I really should get another hour of sleep. I really should work on my final project. All of these excuses will be very rational rational, because the ego is a cunning foe. I shouldn't do my sadhana because I know I'm not the body. Why should I do asana, I'm above it. Let the boy you know what I mean? It's It's very cunning. I don't need to do ritual. I don't need to chant tonight. I know something new now. I'm already enlightened. Your ego will hijack you at every step of the way. You know, they say, if you think you're enlightened or on the side of caution, what's the harm? What's the harm of practicing as if you weren't, even though you are, it will be just, it will, in fact, what, what you, what you do to become enlightened is asana, right? Asana, pranayama, meditation, prayer. And then after enlightenment, you do all those things more. (laughs) Uh, Yes. It's funny. All you want to do is pray after enlightenment. It makes no sense. You know, that you are only, you exist. It's God praying to God by means of God. Yet, the body and mind just wants to pray. It just wants to serve. It just wants to like help others, you know? Um, so do that, do that. So write a list, write a list of all the things that keep you from your practice and, and, and just play with it. Notice, oh, I, I skipped practice today. Write down why. Every time you decide to skip practice, just record your reason. In about a week, you will see there are the same reason, same reasons, and they're all bullshit you'll notice that the reasons are all bullshit. Don't buy into them. When they show up, say, swiper, no swiping. That's all you need to do. Just recognize that swiper has come to rob you of, of maps or something, you know? Practice every day. Do not, under any circumstance, go into your bed before practicing. It, like, I had this, I would go and lie down. I'm like I'm just going to lie down for a moment, and then I'll get up and go and do my, my thing. You'll fall asleep. You know Why? your ego will not take lightly to you dismantling its survival program. Nothing personal. It means well. It's trying to protect you. It's trying to keep you alive in the only way it knows how. When you start tinkering around in there, undoing assumptions that have for a long time kept you alive at the bare minimum, mind you, um, it's it's going to feel like you're sabotaging yourself and killing yourself. It's going to do everything to keep you from that. Uh, first, it will start with Reasonable things like, oh, I'm just sleepy. I have an assignment. Then it will get subtler. Like, oh, actually practicing is a kind of egotism. What am I practicing for? To get stronger? To have Siddhis? You know, and that will keep you from your practice. You know? Um, oh, actually practice is for Shiva. I should stop practicing. It, it, it's it's hubri- hubris. Only Shiva, only grace. Whatever. So It's so subtle. It will catch you. It will catch you at every step of the way. And then when it does, just laugh uh is is a song here yeah song is here we were talking about swiper no swiping and how it's kind of scary right the danger of swiper appearing it's like that write a list so good night vanessa thank you so much so right write. write uh, first find a sangha that can keep you accountable next write a list third thing is try to practice first thing in the day you know definitely don't go to sleep before practicing But try to practice first thing in the day, because you'll notice this, you're trying to change your sense of what's important to you. You know, so right now, your mind places too much emphasis on worldliness. If you don't practice first thing in the day, your mind will always find other priorities in the middle and towards the end of the day. It will nudge out your spiritual practice. So before you even start to think about your day, before you even go, what do I need to do today? Roll out of your bed onto your mat. Have your mat rolled out next to you. Have your altar by your bedside, you know, roll out a bed onto your mat uh, before your mind has the opportunity to hijack your practice. Hijack. Uh, yes, it'll trick you to thinking you'll die, but then you don't. <laughs> I remember in Hangover where the guy was like, boo hooed," but did you die? <laughs> and I often think that, you know, in Mr. Chang, is it Mr. Chang in the Hangover too? His voice, I think, but did you die? <laughs> you won't die. And what's it to you ultimately? It's not that bad. Dying, right? <laughs> you won't die. Okay, so yes, practice before your mind can hijack it. If you are here now and you don't have a daily consistent practice, that's the first thing you need to fix. Don't even worry about the rest of this rec- lecture. Everything else will fall into place when you have a daily consistent practice. Ideally, at the same time every day that nothing in the world can move you from. If you are at an airport, you will find an airport bathroom to do your practice in. That's the level of devotion that you need to seriously be on this path, you know? You can't make the excuse, oh, I'm traveling. No. In the day, and oh, I don't know what time zone I'm in. I don't know. Just practice anyway, you know? I'd be in Hong Kong, and I'd be like, where, where, ah, okay, yeah, it's actually, actually, it's still today, and I don't, you know? When I was traveling a lot, I realized my practice was being hijacked by, uh, what do you call it, time zone negotiation. I have to practice today, but it's still today in Rome, no? Hmm? So then I would just not practice that day. And then I would fly and, and then it would be Paris and it would still be the day. And then I would fly back home to Hong, Hong Kong and Hong Kong. Then it wouldn't be the day anymore. Then I would be one day ahead, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so be careful. The mind will do anything. If you're traveling, it will use that. If you're sick, it will use that. If you're feeling sad, it will use that. Whether sad, whether sick, whether traveling, just practice. It reminds me of a story. Once a uh, uh, guru was about to give a talk. Sage, one of the monks, he was going to give a talk. And before he went on stage, and remember, his practice was karma. He was giving talks, and this moved me a lot. Before he went on stage to give his talk, someone ran to him and handed a note. Handed him a note. He looked at that note, and then put it away. Put it into his back pocket, and went and gave a talk. It was incredible talk. At the end of the talk, someone asked him what was on the note. And either they found the note later or he told them, but the note said, your son just died in an accident. Can you imagine? The note said, the person that you love just died in an accident, folded it, put it in his pocket, gave his talk and then rushed home. What? I mean, isn't that so that that really is a harrowing story because it showed you a practitioner who recognizes that everything comes second to this spiritual practice. Because what am I going to do? If I run now, how how much service can I be to my son to the funeral? I'm just going to be frazzled and upset, you know? You cannot put out the fires in the world if you haven't yet established yourself in spirit. But unless you prioritize spirit, you'll be chasing every fire, putting out one to start five others. So be like that. Do not let anything shift you from your practice. Come hell or high water. Let apocalypse come to find you on your prayer mat. <laughs> you know? Okay. So that's, that's the third thing. So the fourth thing to stay consistent is when you practice, look for fun, look for joy, look for things that are good about practice. You know, so being with people is nice, but let's be fair. There are going to be days where you would rather die than practice. I'm, I'm speaking very literally. You'll have a cold. Maybe you'll have COVID. And the last thing you'll want to do is walk into your room and do your practice. And when we talk about an asana practice, practice wisely. Sometimes, you know, maybe it's not right to do a headstand. You have glaucoma, don't do it. You know, Um, you have high blood pressure or something. Don't do it. Uh, Don't don't be so dogged about this. You know, like, okay, yes. Asana is a different thing. Asana, you must adjust a little bit based on the body. But practice, I'm talking about sadhana, not asana. Um, In order to do it, even in times when you really don't want to do it, you must create a positive association between you and practice. And I'm just going to propose this humbly. Whatever practice you do, please choose one that matches your predisposition. If you're like very emotional and sentimental, sing. Do bhajan, do kirtan, you know? Don't debate. If you're very intellectual, do that. And the reverse is also true. If you're very intellectual, sing if you're very in your heart, debate, you know, whatever it is, right? but whatever your practice is, notice this, most of it will be in concerned with bringing you back here and now, whether you're singing bhajan uh, in glaucoma, we generally say, don't go upside down. You know, if you have something wrong with the eyes, sometimes the, the, the direction of blood to the head can be a little, yeah. We call these contraindications in, in yoga, in Hatha yoga. And, uh, don't take them too seriously. I know a lot of LA yoga teachers who are like, Oh, you're, you're on your period. You can't go upside down. No, no. Contraindications. Like it doesn't mean that it will happen. It's just something to note. you know, like there are many people with glaucoma who are standing on their heads, 10, 10 minutes a day. It's okay. It's just something to note. you know? Um, and on, on another hand, I'm telling you all just don't ignore the limits of your body because your body's in your mind, but please practice safely. but whatever practice you do, and I want to close here. It's, it's always going to be bringing your mind back to now every time it's drifting. Whether you're following the breath in Vipassana, whether you're chanting the name of Krishna, whatever your practice is, every time you notice you're not doing it, celebrate. You see, it's our tendency to punish ourselves for failing in our practice. I fell during my Pinchamayurasana. I forgot I was meditating. I started daydreaming and then we go, bang. But if you do that, you are guaranteeing the unsustainability of your practice because you are creating a Pavlovian conditioning effect between you and practice. You're starting to see it as this terrible self-abnegation in the worst way. It's like a burden. It becomes a thing that you don't want to do. It's vegetables. Ugh, you know, if you turn your practice into broccoli, you will always put it by the side and eat the other stuff on the plate. So let your practice be nando's peri-peri chicken. I don't know what you want, what you eat. Uh, people in West Coast won't get that. But where are my uh, Nando's people at? Anyway, whatever it is that you like to eat, make your practice that. The first moment of your practice, create a positive association. Light incense, have essential oils, make your practice space beautiful. Make it a place you want to be in, you know? Um, Fabrizio can sense, a, I bet. Both in the literal and metaphorical sense of that phrase, Fabricio has got you. <laughs> but yeah, so these are the four suggestions, RJ. I hope that helps. Um, find a community to practice with, uh, write down a list of all your excuses and no matter what, do not cave. Um, I forgot what the third one is, but the, 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 the next one is make sure you're having fun. Even those days where practice sucks, make sure you find things about it that you can enjoy. Okay, back to our list. So to close, the last two, and and in fact, we've already spoken of them. So it can be brief. If you seek for enlightenment as an object, you'll miss it. If you fail to be in your body, You will not find it missing the totality of this moment. If you fail to practice consistently, you will continuously re-traumatize yourself and lose ground. And finally, second to last is, if you compartmentalize your spiritual life, enlightenment is likely to elude you. You see, part of the consistency thing, let's say you've, you've got a consistent practice. There is a danger of compartmentalizing your practice that is saying like, oh, you know what? I did it. I'm done. I finished my yoga for the day. Now I'm just going to go back to being me, you know, being like all the patterns. The, th- the problem with that is the re-traumatization thing. It's like if you compartmentalize your spiritual practice to something you do for an hour every day and then live the rest of your life, it's okay. Yes, cumulatively, it will help. But it, it, it turns out that you, you grow in a weird way. It's like when you're in your spiritual practice, you're great. Because all the associations are there. Yes, I've been a saint for two hours. I can let the devil run free now. (laughs) You know, It's like I did my dues. I I did my Hail Marys. What else? Now I'm just going to go and and, and do what I always do. Now, if you compartmentalize like that, you're not going to be able to shift your locus from the body-mind to the self. Really, spiritual practice is about resting in what you are whilst always being aware of what you're not. It's not getting rid of what you're not. It's just being aware of what you're not so you can relax, just rest in what you are, you know? Now that's not going to happen if you're only that, if you're only the I am for one hour a day. Your practice must, there must be an overspill. And you know what, in time it will happen naturally. So this really isn't really even on the list. If you can just practice consistently, I promise you there will be an overspill. But for those of you who are practicing consistently, Humbly, God willing, I wanted to offer maybe one more troubleshooting thing. Are you compartmentalizing? Do you have a spiritual persona, you know, where you put on your mala beads and put on a certain outfit and then you do it and then you take off your mala beads and then you put away the outfit and you're back doing the same old shit. Are you, are you still involving yourself in the same patterns? Because wow, Nish the yogi would never, but I'm not Nish the yogi right now. I'm Nish the rock star cut up those lines. Let's go rail some more. You know, like for a while, that was my problem. There was a compartmentalization. And one thing that helped was to redefine my sense of self. It was instrumental. Given that I was going to have a sense of self anyway, it might as well be Nish the yogi as opposed to Nish the Bacchanal, you know? And yes, Nish lost a lot of friends because if he wasn't railing coke anymore, if he wasn't like, you know, three times a week, ecstasy, let's party, party on Garth, party on Wade. If if he wasn't that, well, what, what fun was he? He wasn't drinking anymore. He would go to the, he would be in the club after having played the show, sip some tea. How boring, how lame, you know, but it's important that there was a shift. It was like, okay, I'm Nish the Yogi. You know, even though it was like faking it till you make it at first, yeah, I want the ecstasy, but I'm just going to do the tea. At least, um, it gives you a chance not to compartmentalize your spirituality. So don't, don't uh, limit your spirituality to something that you do. Turn it into something that you are, you know? And mala beads are good for that. They're always scratching on your skin, reminding you who you are, literally, you know? So play with that. Don't compartmentalize your spirituality. Have integrity, beautiful man. Be spiritual through and through. And that's one thing you notice about enlightened people. They have incredible integrity. Like there's no give in them. They're solid through and through integ- integrity. You know Why? Because they're translucent. There's nothing there anymore. There's no body that they need to be afraid of. There's no personality they need to protect. So suddenly they seem authentic, you know? There's no pretense. There's nothing they need from you. They don't need you to like them. They don't need you to pay them any money. Um, They're not afraid of poverty. You know, they're not afraid of ill repute. And so what do you get? You get integrity. So right now have that, you know? One obstacle might be a lack of integrity as a result of compartmentalizing your spiritual life. There's a danger here too, because when I say have that integrity, be that, fake it till you make it, there are many people who wear orange robes who inside are lusting after every woman they meet. There's no point saying you're over lust if you're just going to go to the coffee shop and like try to seduce everybody, you know, um, so be careful because there's a kind of sham integrity you know like oh i'm a yogi i wear my neck i got my mala i got my robe everybody sees i'm a yogi and then you enter into a conspiracy with other people so they will reify your own idea of i'm a yogi then that's your new construct no in fact if that's your tendency get rid of your mala get rid of your yogi clothes go out and wear like i don't know thrasher or i don't know some kind of i I, I don't know what just go and, and do something weird and in fact, everybody could benefit from a month without symbols. Take away necklaces, all that. Anything that would connote you as a spiritual person, get rid of that. Get rid of the idea of you being a spiritual person. But be it. You know, everywhere you go, be it. If you notice yourself like hitting on someone because, like, you know, you're, oh, yeah. notice that and be like, that's not me. You know. Um, so fourth. Now the final one. We'll close here, and this is the most important one. So the five obstacles to enlightenment, seeking it. Uh, not being in your body, not being consistent, compartmentalizing spiritual practice, and the final one, disengaging with real people and real life. Here's another paradox for you. You should spend as much time as you can in your sangha, but do not leave the world. You need to go and hang out with your middle school teacher who triggered you in math class. You need to visit your parents and guardians often it's there where your spirituality is tested. If you think you're a saint, what is it? You think you're so enlightened, go and spend some time with your mother and father. Or I think, uh, who is it? Um, Cornfield, Jack Cornfield, the Buddhist meditation teacher. I think he says, my parents hate me when I'm a Buddhist. You know, cause they were very against his Buddhist persuasions and Buddhist practices. So when he came home and he started talking Paramita Sutra, all that, his parents they didn't have a nice relationship. So he said, My parents hate me when I'm a Buddhist. They love me when I'm a Buddha. Do you see? Don't go home and Bible thump, you know? (laughs) Don't go home and tell your parents, wow, mom, that's so unenlightened. Don't you know you're not the body and the mind? No, go home and pour your mother some tea. Speak about human things like the weather, you know? Talk about, I don't know, sports. Do not be so lost in a world of abstract ideas that you forget how to be a person in the world with real people who are still in the matrix. you know. A spiritual person should be as comfortable in the tavern as they are in the mosque. So here's a story, Rumi, um, what eventually broke him was of course the death of his teacher, Shams. His teacher was killed by his own son. Rumi's son killed Rumi's teacher, you know? And there's tremendous loss in that, losing your guru. Hmm? And yes, that, that opened him up. That heartbreak was what did it. But you know, right before that happened, right before um, Rumi lost Shams, something also happened. There was a night, a very special night. And Shams said to Rumi, There's one last thing you need to do to become spiritual. Something is holding you back. I mean, you have everything. You, you're already there's one last thing holding you back your conservatism. You're an Islamic scholar known throughout Konya for being a powerful uh, teacher of Islam. You're a you're you're fakir. You know that word fakir? Someone who really knows the law, like Sharia and and everything fakir. But to be spiritual, you have to become a fakir. You have to go from being a fakir, wise, to a fakir, poor. (laughs) That's it's just a wordplay, Islamic wordplay for you. Fakir means mendicant. Now. Unless you can want, yeah, I think, yeah loving the wordplay, huh? Unless you can do that, you, you, there will always be a block, always too much self. So Sham told Rumi, if you want to be spiritual, he, first he asked, do you love me? In fact, he held Rumi's hand because he knew what he was going to ask was going to take a lot of trust. So holding Rumi's hand, much to the chagrin of his wife, who was very afraid of the homoerotic overtones there, he was holding Rumi's hand and said, uh, do you love me? And Rumi said, more than my own life.'" I love you so much. I love you exclusively. And Sham said, fine. Here's what I want you to do for me. You'll do anything for me? In the name of love. And Rumi said, anything, anything, ask it. Be careful. When your guru says you'll do anything for me, be careful when you say, yes, I will. Because the next thing that Sham said was, okay, here's what you have to do. Go in all of your clothes, like your scholar's clothes, wear your entire Muslim get up. Go in your white horse. He was known to have this horse that he rode through the streets. Go to the local tavern, the most popular tavern at, the, at happy hour or whatever. Go in your horse so everyone knows it's you. Hold your head high. Don't sneak in, in a rope. Go to the tavern. Make sure everyone sees you, a Muslim scholar, walking into a place of ill repute. Go into that place and buy two jugs of wine, bring them home and have a drink with me. Oh, Right? And this is, this is, you have to understand how huge this is because it's Rumi sacrificing the rest of his career. Your guru will tell you to quit a job you've Your guru will ask you to give all your money to charity. Are you prepared for that? You know? And so Shams asked Rumi and he, cried the whole way. His heart was broken, but he had to do it. He gave his word. So he went against his will. He went and he walked into the tavern and he ordered two jugs of wine. The tavern becomes quiet. When Maulana, you know, Jalaluddin himself, when he walked into the tavern, Rumi, peace and blessings be upon him. When he walked to the bar, there was a hush, a palpable hush. It was like the whole of Konya had the hand over the mouth. He did what? And he buys the two jugs of wine, and someone in the corner, a drunk, says, Jalaluddin, is that you, Maulana? And and everyone's like, oh, this guy was such a fool. He was like a drunk fool. And Rumi, his heart broken, he cried. He took his two jugs of wine, placed it on the table, and sat to have a conversation with a guy in the tavern. And they just talked. They just talked about the coming war with the Mongols. They talked about the rule of the caliphate. Nothing spiritual. They just talked. And then another person came to the table and another person came to the table. And suddenly there was a party with Rumi at the center of the attention, getting to know people that he previously condescended to. Why is it that Jesus hangs out with tax collectors and prostitutes. Why is it that Shiva is surrounded by goblins, grumpkins, snarks, vampires, and all the rest of the gunners? It's only when you can do that, it's only when you can move amongst the most uncouth among you that your spirituality begins. So the rest of the story is, he leaves the tavern a fakir. He came in a fakir, he left the tavern a fakir, And he goes back to Shams late in the night. Shams is, of course, awake, humming his rosary. And he hands Shams the wine. He puts the wine in front of him and says, let's have a drink, my master. And Shams watches him. Maulana takes the drink to his lips. The drink is approaching. And then Shams slaps it out of his hand. He takes his own drink and pours it into the weeds. Sorry, Fabricio. I know you wanted the wine payoff here. And he pours his own drink into the weeds and he throws his jug aside too. And he said, Choose the wine of spirit. And and, and that's why Rumi from that moment on is writing about wine, because you see the wine of spirit is that it's the complete abnegation of yourself, dragging your own name through the mud and being with people, you know, just being with common people who don't do spirituality. That's the (laughs) way instantly lost a convert in Fabricio. Yes. The wine of spirit. And, and, And actually there's more to that discourse. Uh, it's, a, it's a discourse against wine and inebriation. The Buddha has the same discourse in the Anapana, not, not Dharma Chakra, Pravartana Sutra. He says, Don't get intoxicated. I mean, drink wine, that's fine. Just don't get drunk. Why? Uh, Maulana was told by Shams, his leader, he was told, If you get drunk, you'll forget God. You become self forgetful. So be drunk on God because that's zikir, self remembrance. You know? So why don't get drunk? Because it interrupts zikir. It interrupts mindfulness. Don't take my word for it. Try it. There's a kind of dullness to inebriation. It's good in the beginning, but you lose your zikir. You lose your mindfulness. So that's a bit loaded. There's a lot in there. But the final thing I wanted to offer, God willing, in today's talk was this. The final obstacle to your spirituality is your spirituality. Is your identity as a spiritual aspirant causing you to feel divorced from your family? you know, from the world around you. It's not about how you are at the retreat. It's about how you are at Thanksgiving dinner. That's really where the work is. So go to that, you know? I know your Uncle Jerry is going to be there. I know he's weird. And I know he's going to ask you questions that will break your heart. What are you going to do with a philosophy degree, huh? Why did you drop out of pre-med? You know, they're going to ask you questions. that are going to suck. Um, but that's where you have to go. Maybe not yet. You know, practice first, practice consistently, give it about a year, shore up your defenses. Don't go into the world yet before your sapling has turned into an oak tree. But for a lot of you, you are oak trees. You know, you don't need the hedge around the sapling anymore, but you're holding on to it. Why? You know, you're oak trees, but still you keep the hedge. You keep the hedge of the Sangha. You keep the hedge of your practice. You keep the hedge of your name. That's your final obstacle, you know? Once you've done all of this, please go back, go to the sports bar, maybe get a drink of beer. You're not going to get drunk at this point, hopefully, and talk about sports, scream when the Seattle Seahawks land something, go to the gym, work out with your gym bros, talk about Gains Goblins, you know, spell Gains with a Z. I don't know, do mundane things um, and just be normal, be a person you know? Um, and you know how spiritual a person is when they have regular friends too. You know, if, all, if their only community is spiritual people, if the only conversation they can have with others is about crystals and demigods, there's a problem there. There's a kind of stagnation, you know? So this is the final clue for those of you who know not to seek enlightenment, who know that you already have it and are just integrating it. For those of you who do have a consistent practice, for those of you who are in your body every day, that's part of your practice. For those of you who don't compartmentalize, maybe the last thing you need to do is go to Big Bear with Dad or your guardian or whatever. You know, that might be your final boss. <laughs> I say Big Bear because that's where Grace is going. Oh wait, no, I shouldn't reveal that. It's a, it's not Grace, Grace is going to Small Bear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so see, um, have, have regular friends. So we'll close there. These are the five things. And we'll close with, with a very interesting way to define enlightenment. Enlightenment is not a thing. It's not an experience. It's not something that can happen to you. It's not waiting for you on the other end of some amount of practice. It's not waiting to be recovered. It's not even close to you. It's not even something you have. Enlightenment is the ease of being, the ultimate relaxation that doesn't take you away from life. It doesn't replace life. It's something that sanctifies life. It's something that gives meaning to life. And so you must come down from the mountain and live that life. You know, you did not, and this is the, we were talking with Anisha on Thursday. You did not spin all of this into existence so you can stand up your date at the bar. You're just learning to be a better boyfriend, girlfriend, partner, you know? So you you invited her, you called Shakti down to the Muladhara Chakra. You know, you spun this entire world into existence so you could spurn it, so you could close your eyes and leave it all behind. The reason you're practicing is so you can finally enjoy um, the Seattle Seahawks game at the sports bar. (laughs) That's the ultimate irony. And then you'll know you're there because you'll need nothing. You won't fear death. You won't fear disrepute. And you will be, mark my words, completely ordinary, completely ordinary. There will be nothing unique, nothing special about you. Most people won't even recognize you're enlightened. Because you don't wear any signs. You don't say anything. You smile and talk about the weather. But for some reason, and they don't really understand why, but for some reason, when people sit with you, they feel like telling you all their problems. You know, they don't know who you are. They don't know that you're enlightened. They just unburden the you're, you're at the Seattle Seahawks game. Here's what will happen. Okay. You're sitting at the Seattle Seahawks game and you've got your beer and you're like, yeah, Seahawks. And, and the person next to you will turn, look and turn away. And then suddenly turn again and be like, my wife left me. What's up with that? And you know what? You will sit and listen for the next seven hours. Why? You got nowhere to be. You got nothing to do. <laughs> so you will listen and that person will cry. They will cry and then they will realize something. Oh, I need to leave her. Oh, sorry, she left me because I have this problem. And they will figure <laughs> it. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> And they will figure it all out for themselves. And you're just sitting there smiling, you know, just sitting. All you're doing is being. And they will figure it all out for themselves. And then they will fall to your feet and say, you are my guru. You are my teacher. And you're going to sit there with your beer saying, I'm just trying to watch the game, bro. Can you sit down and control yourself? You know, um, and that's the ultimate joke from all of it. So the greatest thing you can give someone, as Fabrizio beautifully pointed out last week, and uh, as Anthony, who's not here today, um, saw commented on the Patreon post, said the best part of last week's talk was Fabrizio's insight, and it's the most profound insight. And if you don't mind, Fabrizio, I'll parrot you a little bit. Uh, but Fabrizio, and I hope he will say more when we when we end and open up the floor. Fabrizio said. Um, The single greatest thing you can do for someone, the only service you can offer to somebody is your attention, your full undivided attention. You cannot love anybody until you learn to do that and you meditate so you can love other people. And what do we mean by love other people? Sit with a stranger at the bar and listen for seven hours to what they have to say. And then they will be healed from that. And in time, you'll notice something eerie. People might start to gather around you. Bees always come to honey. People will come. And then you will find yourself in the role of a teacher. Um, and you might do this in several ways. You might just make art, sing songs, dance. You might cobble shoes. You might make bread. You'll have the most popular bakery on the street. Just you wait. Teach that way. If your craft, whatever your craft was, it'll be the same craft after, you know? So if you were a bakery person before, after enlightenment, bake bread. You'll, you'll be ba- Except your bread will be a teaching, you see? Everyone who eats your bread will go home and start to meditate, you know? Um, So do that. When people start to gather around you, start to bake the bread. Uh, If you are a teacher, if you just happen to be that, then teach. And you might find that in order to teach, and here's the predicament, in order to teach, you have to adopt a persona. You have to put on a fake self again. You might grow an Afro. You could be a bartender, exactly. Slide, slide someone the beer and when they catch the beer, the froth will spill over and they'll go into ecstasy, samadhi. And, 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 and by the way, I need to close this, otherwise we'll talk all night. It's flowing beautifully. But let's, let's end with this final phrase. Uh, Alan Watts, he said, enlightenment is the ego's last disappointment, right? And, and, and I think the reason he said that is because it's the single least dramatic thing that will ever happen to you, you know? It's, it's the subtlest, quietest, no drama thing. You know those people who have a psychedelic experience and run to your house and say, bruh, I had an ego death. It, it can, it's not like that. That's delusion. That's, you made it an object. Even though it was a genuine thing, even though you genuinely experienced the end of the ego, the moment you came out, you made it a concept. And now you have a new ego accolade, the ego death. Ego death is the ego's last ditch at preserving its self-importance. I'm special. No, no, no you will realize actually how much, how unspecial you are, you know? And then you'll wear simple clothes. You want simple things. You'll have a passion for truth and simplicity. Uh, you'll sleep on the floor. You just become a beggar, you know? Fuck it. Uh, and then we'll close here. Enlightenment is so undramatic. It's so unspectacular. Um, and it's so subtle that if the if you feel the urge to talk about it, to tell other people about your enlightenment, to tell people what you've realized, uh, it's probably not it, you know? However, if you are a teacher, if you do find yourself in this position where you're teaching, you might feel like, oh, you know what? I do need to be a little eccentric. I, you, might do, you might wear certain clothes and you might do some nonsense things like, I don't know, powers. You might show people your powers. You might read their thoughts. You might appear to them in dreams. Like that will be up to you when you become enlightened, you know. Uh, because when you s- relax into this lightenment, people will gather around you. And that's a whole other can of worms. And we'll talk about that another time. But for now, let's just close here. And we'll close with a mantra. And it's the Maha Mrithun Jaya Mantra. And it means, may we be extricated from our bondage the way one might pull a cucumber from the cucumber stem. just. Gentle. We'll chant it three times together. Feel free to sit any way you like, bow the head, bring the hands together, whatever you want to do. Feel free to chant it along as well. Um, I'll actually type it in here. No, 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 don't worry. How can you be late, Kanchi? What is time? Om Triambagam, Triyambagam, some dialects say. um. Uh, The H's are all aspirated. Try to find out how to spell it. So we'll chant that thrice, you're welcome to join in. And as you chant it, really pour yourself into it fully. Or if you're just chanting, oh, pour yourself into that. Let the sound purify and clean all that needs to be purified in you. May it illumine all the dark places and may may it once and for all, here and now, extricate you from these five uh, obstacles. Oh.
1: Magam yaja Sugandim pushti vardhanam, Uruvarukamiva bandhanan, Brithyor mukshiyam amritahat, Omdriyam magam yaja mahe. Sugandhim Pushti Vardhanam Urvarukami Vabhandhanan Mriti Or indrayam bhagam yajamaha sugandhim pushti vardhanam urvarukamiva bandhanan mrityor mukshiyam amritat shanti 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 hari om tat shri ram krishna namastu thank you for being my teachers
0: om peace peace peace